All right. That was a little modern gothic to get us into the mood for today's show. <clears throat> We're going to be talking about possession. And possession has a couple different meanings. And we're going to explore so a we, couple of different meanings to, to possession. You guys are in. Oh, start video. No, no, we're in. We, yeah. I, we're just actually watching the end of the clip because Sorry, we, we it's a few seconds behind. That's okay. That's pretty uh, pretty wild, huh? Wow. Hey, we've got the boys with us. <laughs> you got a little green screen action back there today. How'd that happen? Uh, I was testing, put them up, Aww, see how they are. That's, like our sweet, that's our sweet goat. Yeah, that's uh, actually... Um, the middle, the goat staring down you in the middle is Pynchon, our great greatest goat. And I have a Pynchon quote on my no, shirt. This is today. Pynchon on the left. That's Pynchon. That's maybe that's who's okay. Obviously, she's better at telling them apart than I, I am. know my children, my little darling. So, hi, hi, Robert. Hi, everybody. We were mesmerized by the video. <laughs> yeah. So, the you know, I've been talking to Chris and Steve this morning about how we were going to kind of approach the show, and we were joking around. That'd be great if we could like play uh, Jezebel from is that my what life. That is? Yeah, Jezebel it's called Spirit. Jezebel Spirit. Oh, from, the music. Oh, the music from my life of the Bush of Ghosts. Oh God, what a great song! So right. we were talking about that. I'm like, well, it'd be great if I could find something along mm -hmm. those lines that I could play that would communicate this idea of possession. And I stumbled across that clip as I, I was just looking for you know a song that had. Pretty impressive. Possession, possession with music, right? I just uh -huh. did a, I did a search for that on YouTube, and then I found that. And what's interesting about that is that's a that's a Russian director. Oh. And I believe it's a scene from a longer movie called The Night of the Wolf. So it kind of fits into what we're going to talk about today. Gee, yeah, that was that was pretty cool. Right, so, and you know, and and you knew it was uh, Russian because the priest had a bottle of vodka on the, oh, on the altar there. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah, that 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 is the definition of holy water, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Spirit, oh, yeah. the spirits. Did it say vodka? Yeah, I didn't see it. I didn't say vodka, but what else could it be? Well, like Robert said, it could have been holy water. <laughs> but not, maybe they're, maybe they're one and the same. Not maybe they're one and the same. Yeah, well, that's funny. Right, because we do know that vodka is a spirit. So that's right. Yeah, so we're gonna we're gonna get into some very interesting territory today. Kind of a a mashup of a couple of different themes that are circulating through, uh, you know, the media sphere, uh, kind of where we are uh, planetarily and kind of picking up on a theme that we sort of left off on the last time when Chris and Steve were here and did a pretty deep dive on Malachi Martin and Malachi Martin was an exorcist. So we're going to be talking about exorcism later in the show and really how it relates to sort of the the, the meat of the topic today, which is going to be this thing with the Hunter Biden laptop. Mm -hmm. And what was interesting is after our discussion, we were talking, you know, the, the idea here was, was possession. By the way, if you are new to the Friday forecast, as some of you might be, um, we're talking with the Krimis, Steve and Chris. And we're really very wholesome. You, know? <laughs> you, you are. You've got the nice white goats behind you and... Yeah. Right. You guys, you guys have managed to exercise your demons over the past mm -hmm. you know, years, decades. So um, the Krimis stop by once a month, the first Friday of every month. And it just happens to be the first and a Friday today. 
Mm, so right. we're, we're totally hitting it sometimes. It's April Fools. And it's April Fools, which is why I have the, the gestures behind me. Very nice. Yeah. And um, we're going to talk about Hunter Biden, who, in my estimation, is a fool, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, a sad fool. He's like a dark in, jester. In he is a dark jester and he's an Aquarian. And I've talked about the relationship between Aquarius and Leo astrologically, because mm-hmm. Leo is the sign of the king and the queen. You know, in this in this instance, the king matters, right? And so who does the king have around? He has the court jester around. And who is the court jester in that relationship? The court jester is Aquarian. Because the court jester is disruptive, irreverent, all these things that we associate with the sign of Aquarius. Um, Sometimes the court jester can say things that can be truthful, but also get him in trouble. Mm -hmm. And if the king is, you know, not really happy with what's going on, he might slap the court jester in the head or something like that, right? But it's this device, the court jester is this device so that the king has a check and a balance on his ego theoretically that's the role that they played best best example is king lear the fool and king lear that's certainly the best literary example right Whereas king lear's daughter calls him thou all licensed fool um, right so we're talking about the fool the jester to some degree the clown comes out of this tradition but really the jester and the fool mm-hmm. and hunter biden he plays that role right and who's who's the king in Hunter Biden's world? The, the big, big guy. guy. The big guy, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So we're going to get into that today. We're going to get into uh, some of the Hunter, Hunter Biden stuff. And one of the things that I thought was interesting is that when we talk about possession, right? You know, you know, we were looking at it from the Malachi Martin, uh, you know, William Peter Blatty exorcist kind of definition of the word, but possession is also having something in your possession, right? Like the laptop and having possession of the laptop. And what does the laptop become like in that definition? You know what I mean? So we're dealing with two different definitions of possession. One where something is being possessed, a person is being possessed by a spirit or a force. And the other is holding something. Mm-hmm. that you theoretically own and you possess it, the object. So we're going to, we're going to play with that a little bit today because it's an interesting dynamic. And um, why don't we start off with some of the stuff that we wanted to talk about, you know, setting the stage with this. And this is the relationship with the United States and Russia. We'll kind of go in and out of that today as part of the theme, Russia, Ukraine, and that region. And Steve, you wanted to get into Mm-hmm. the the relationship between Russia and the United States during the Revolutionary War and the Civil War, which in a lot of ways creates the tableau for how this thing is going to go down, right, through 1917 all the way up till now. These are very, very important historical moments that some people may not know a lot about. Right. Yeah. So um, I'm just going to give credit. Uh, I've t- a bunch of articles, but this person's book, Matthew Matthew Errett, who's been, uh, um, it's got a green it. cover, so it's not really showing up in the oh, green screen. No, um, oh, okay. yeah, I'll pull it back. Uh, you pull it back a little bit. for a second. Anyway, sorry about this. We're, we're well, maybe a, to a what's, what, what's the name of the book? The book is called, it's a first of two. It's called 
the clash of the two americas volume one and it you know so the he's a canadian writer really good historian his wife uh cynthia chung is also a really good historian there you go Hold against yourself um He's been on a bunch of podcasts lately. We came across him and he just, he just knows his stuff and he owns it. You know, the, the people who can just speak this stuff out, you know, all this history. So he's Canadian, and I, you know, and I learned a few interesting things out of this book. Uh, one of them is, is that there was a real push by Benjamin Franklin to make Quebec the 14th uh, colony, including, including taking trips up there. There you go. Oh, that's much better. So, um, so really, uh, and, and this is actually very important in the long run, uh, the fact that uh, Quebec um, did not become uh, a colony. And one of the things, that, because uh, Ben Franklin had a printing press, so he is able to print up all these pamphlets, sort of like the thing that worked in the colonies. He was talking 1775. Um, you know, all the pamphlets worked really well, but the problem in Quebec was that it was Jesuit run and the Jesuits were, and Catholic, and the Jesuits were not very into people being literate. And so what happened was they brought up all these pamphlets, but very few people could read them. So that was one of the reasons they think that it didn't go over so well, um, or they were unable to, um, you know, to, to convince the, the Quebecois to, you know, to form these little groups and things like that, because the way it happened, you know, your little groups, bigger groups, and then eventually joining the Continental Congress. So that didn't happen um, because Britain tells the gives uh, tells the tells them that they won't persecute the Catholics. Basically, that's it. So that's the deal that the Brits made to keep Quebec Quebec in, in Canada. Okay. Um, and then the British takeover of Canada is helped a lot by, uh, by the, you know, the loyalists leaving America and that helps establish Canada and that's a whole other thing. And there's another thing that was really interesting, a good backdrop to this is that um, apparently by 1793, well, six of the states had banished slavery and the other seven states had um, eliminated any new slaves coming. So back before 1800, even slavery was supposed to be an over thing in America. And then of course, what happens and this ends up running into the civil war is that the, the British do not like that. They did not want the North to have any manufacturing at all. And apparently 75% of the cotton coming from the Southern states uh, went directly to India and, and, and because Britain had all the textile mills and they were, you know, they destroyed all the textile industries in, say, India, which have, you know, this long history of textiles to, to, you know, force their textiles on India and, you know, everywhere they were in the globe at that time. So that's, you know, another thing in the mix, but I thought that was really interesting. And so, and I don't know the exact mechanism by which slavery got reversed in the South, but it did. Um, and, and, but we know the Brits were behind it. So um, the longs, the long, simple story is that the Brits have never been our friends, mm. and, uh, and and we really have to keep that in mind when we're looking at things. Mm -hmm. So what what happens? Um, so Catherine uh, Catherine the Great is the Tsarina at the time of the Revolutionary War, and um, what happens? They they do not want um, in general. They see it to their advantage 
for for the uh, for the for the colonies to to separate from from Britain, because Britain, of course, they had just they had just fought the Crimean War, which is a really what it was like six hundred fifty thousand people died in that war. Mm. It was a really bloody affair. Mm. Um, so you know, so they are natural enemies. Of right in the region that we're talking about today. Exactly. You know. So yeah. So I mean, during actually, it was right after the Revolutionary War that Catherine the Great annexed Crimea. Um, no, no, no. Sorry, it was it's during the Civil War. I apologize. Um, so anyway, so 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 Britain thinks that, but yeah, we're all monarchies, and you know, you guys hate serfs because they're you know always putting down uh, rebellions in Russia also. So, so they, so the Britons think, well, you know, we're all monarchs, we're all related, you know, send us 20,000 troops. Britain had money, didn't have troops at the time. Um, didn't have like a hardened battle troops that were ready to go. Whereas Russia just had, uh, just had um, defeated, uh, had a war with Turkey and had just defeated them. And they had some, you know, well-trained established troops. Mm. So, so Russia, uh, sorry, England asked for 20,000 of them to put down the rebellion in 1775. So we're talking right as things are getting started, right? I think Bunker Hill was 1775. So, and, and Catherine kind of just plays them along for a while and doesn't say, she, she refuses, but she doesn't say like a definite no. And so during this whole next year, there's all these sort of um, news stories, yes, they're sending 30,000, no, they're not sending the 20,000, on and on and on. So it was a kind of confusing, but I think she was, she was delaying things. And so, and then, and then by 1780, she does something, it's called the Armed Neutrality, uh, League of Armed Neutrality. And what this does, so, um, that, that they continued to trade with us during the revolution, which was re period, which ended in 1783. They, this was very important to us because, you know, they sent us sailcloth, hemp, which was useful for everything, and also iron. Hmm. So, um, so these are things that, you know, could be molded into bullets and things like that. Um, so Britain is expecting to get help from Russia for about a year, and it doesn't happen. So they can't pay for them, they can't bribe them. So what happens is that um, we have a year to get our army trained. We get our year, our year to set up some munitions and to kind of figure out what, you know, get a, get a game plan for the whole thing. So those so there was no direct involvement and there's no, you know, it's not like, you know, we love America, we love the American ideal. But it's a long, there's like, it's this long view of we know that, you know, America is, because it's going to eventually come to the Pacific is, is going to be a long time trading partner with us. And so, and so, she, so this is really smart. So they were able to do trade, but they were, the ships were armed so that the Brits could not put up a naval blockade on the colonies or at least uh, one, you know, sufficient to do the damage that they wanted to do. Because if you, if you fired on say a Russian ship, well, there was a whole league of, there was like about 10, 15 European nations that that would be a causes belli then if you attacked one of them. So the Brits refrained from doing that. So this, so all this to say that um, Russia really helped us in the Revolutionary War. Then, then the Russia upped the ante in 1780, and they said, um, "Look, you sent us some troops, 
will give you the island and I have to look at the name again because it's not an island I know of. And it's not Mallorca, it's um, um, Menorca, Menorca, mm -hmm. which was just, it's south of Spain, but Britain, Britain had control of it at the time and they had a, a big naval station there. And of course, all throughout Russian history, the warm, the warm water port was always uh, something very important to them and still is, hence all the stuff going on in the Crimea. Um, because all their ships come out through the Bosphorus, you know, and into the Mediterranean from there. So, um, so they upped the ante and offered her um, this island, which would have been, which was a, a pretty good deal for on their part. But eventually, eventually, I, I read two versions of the stories: one where she she backed out, and the other where the Brits backed out because they thought things were going well enough. In the war, I think they had, had gotten, you know, the Prussians over there. Um, but again, this sort of bought some time. And by that time, the French were able to come here and help us out. And so that's, you know, that's the, the main story of how, how they helped us, you know, without their delaying tactics, you know, the Revolutionary War might have been over, you know, uh, within a few months if, if they had sent Russian troops here. Right. So that's interesting because that's happening right around the Pluto return, Pluto and Capricorn. Oh, okay. Interesting development. Yeah. I wonder so, if we can get rid of the back screen because yeah. it's very distracting. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, yep. I have a. Uh, go to none. Okay. I think that's better. So. Um, it was fun, but. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it's distracting to me to be blinking in and out. You know, you know other than that's usually kind of how things go. It felt like we were being possessed by the shit. Well, like they were trying, Robert. It was, Robert, it was, it was like there was something weird and supernatural going we on there. didn't give them permission. You know. And so, and then into the Civil War, so not to run this out because it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, but you don't have to make a whole long story of it that in so in this um, civil war, uh, the, the czar is Alexander II. And in fact, he frees this 23 million serfs in um, 1861, which is I believe the year the civil war began. So, um, so he, he understands the, 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 you know, the dynamic and I'm, I'm guessing serfdom and slavery aren't, aren't terribly different. Mm -hmm. um, so, I think with what? serfdom, you have a contract, right? You have a contract and your contract ends at a certain point. Mm. Whereas slavery, I think you're just indentured for, from, yeah. you know, womb to tomb. So I think there's a, it's a little bit of a difference. It could, it could be, okay. but, but certainly the life wasn't much different. Um, so, um, so, so Lincoln actually asks uh, Russia to help. And I thought this was a, a in, in the in the beginning of the Civil War in 1862. Oh, and I thought this was just just as a point of um, interest that the it took um, five weeks for the uh, for, for the for 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 the, the knowing that the Declaration of Independence was signed in 1776. It took five weeks for that news to get to Saint Petersburg. And that's where um, uh, where uh, Catherine found out. So I just thought that was just an interesting. You think about that vast vast space, and back in that time, that's what it took for them to hear the news. Mm -hmm. So so I would figure it would take maybe that's just as long as it takes a ship to get there. Mm -hmm. But I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, 
So there is a there is a I'm just going to do um, two two quick little readings. One is from the the Russian Foreign Minister Gorbachev, not Gorbachev, um, who who writes back to Lincoln in 1862. So just so you know the understanding that people have of the subtleties of what's going on, you know that the government of the United States have few friends among the powers. England rejoices over what is happening to you. She longs and prays for your overthrow. France is less actively hostile. Her interests would be less affected by the result, but she is not unwilling to see it. She is not your friend. Your situation is getting worse and worse. The chances of preserving the union are growing more desperate. Can nothing be done to stop this dreadful war? The hope of reunion is growing less and less. And I wish to impress upon your government that the separation, which I fear must come, will be considered by Russia as one of the greatest misfortunes. Russia alone has stood by you from the first and will continue to stand by you. We are very, very anxious that some means should be adopted, that any course should be pursued, which will prevent the division, which now seems inevitable. Hmm. One separation followed by another, you will break into fragments. Hmm. So what happens is Russia sends uh, a fleet to New York City, and to San Francisco. And this is um, to prevent another British blockade, um, especially to control, to control the South. And again, um, Britain's afraid to get into a war with Russia because they don't want how many fronts they don't really need at this point to deal with number of fronts. And um, so they themselves hold back uh, from, from uh, implementing the blockade and the Russian ships prevent, um, you know, because, because, um, well, they're not going to read the second quote, and this is from the Tsar, because um, England and France uh, were trying to entreat Russia to actually militarily um, uh, support the South with actual mm -hmm. troops, right? So this is an interview that uh, Tsar Alexander gave in 1879 um, in uh, something, uh, the, 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 the Independent. So in the autumn of 1862, the governments and France of France and Great Britain proposed to Russia in a formal but not official way, the joint recognition by European powers of the independence of the Confederate States of America. So they wanna recognize them as a separate country in, in which point then they can you know, come in militarily. I will not cooperate in such in such an action, I, I answered them, and I will not acquiesce. On the contrary, I shall accept the recognition of the independence of the Confederate States by France and Great Britain as a causus belli for Russia. So they would consider it an act of war against Russia to recognize the Confederate States. Hmm. And so, you know, so it's a pretty good measure of support. Mm -hmm. And in order that the governments in France and Great Britain may understand that this is no idle threat, I will send a Pacific fleet San Francisco and Atlantic fleet to New York. All this I did because of my love of my own dear Russia, rather than for love of the American Republic. I acted thus because I understood that Russia would have a more serious task to perform if the American Republic with advanced industrial development were broken up and Great Britain should be left in control of most branches of the modern industrial development. Hmm. So. You know, so again, this is this, you know, recognition that helping us helps them, 
not necessarily for helping us. And we see this over and over again with, you know, with the whole, you know, Putin thing, Putin always acting in, in, in Russia's interests and uh, not. And the reverse is true today. We're hurting them hurts us. So the sanctions against mm -hmm. Russia right now are hurting us. So that's like a, a mirror image of that. Yeah, it is a very strange mirror image because also <clears throat> one could make a case that even though, you know, definition of a civil war is where a country is at war with itself, right? I mean, that's how we understand a civil war. But Ukraine at a certain point was a part of Russia, right? Mm -hmm. It was a part of the Soviet Union. Yeah. And you could probably make a case that this would be very close to being a civil war because of past relationships and past affiliation. And the fact that you'll have people who will speak Russian in Ukraine and not just the Donetsk area, but also in Kiev. There are people who speak Russian in Kiev. So they probably have family or relatives, relationships in Russia. So it qualifies as a civil war. And yeah, yeah, so what so what does Russia do? They they kind of get involved in the old civil war, but they're basically saying, let this take place, right? You, you, we don't we don't want any undue influence here, at least in the civil war. Revolutionary war, a little bit different. They've got some skin in the game and they say, okay, well, these people can be trading partners for us. So maybe we want to strike better deals with them than we do with England. And we recognize that there's all these natural resources, right? But it's the civil war part that I think is interesting. Unlike what's happening now, because we have completely, utterly and completely entered into the fray, right? In a so-called civil war, even though we don't have supposedly troops on the ground, which I don't always believe, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we have supplied... Ukraine, the, uh, the Ukrainians with any number of weapons. Apparently, uh, there's been some news that the Ukrainians have been using uh, American drones and using these drones to drop bioweapons oh, into Russia. Oh. So, oh, I did hear that. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah we heard that. We heard yeah. that that possibility, and yeah, yeah. So, so the United States is now engaging with Ukraine vis-a-vis -a, -vis a drone war, hmm. which is completely 21st century wartime tactics. Or engaging with Russia. Russia with um, a drone war, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. they're engaging Ukraine and giving them the drones. Yeah, that's ugly. Provi providing them with satellite imagery and stuff like that, right? So so, so I just get two more points. Yeah, go ahead. All right, one of them, one of them has involves the sale of Alaska, which is involved in all this, which was 1867. And um, and what that did, because so the, so what the Brits did was they rushed to British Columbia to populate British Columbia so that they could establish themselves on that coast of the United States. One of the reasons, and Russia, and, uh, Russia was saying in, through these internal documents are in the book, that Russia was saying, look, we're not going to hold on to Alaska anyway. You know, the, 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 now that they've got the transcontinental railroad in, um, you know, it's eventually going to connect up to Alaska. They're going to take it anyway, and it's not going to be worth worth the effort. It'll take us to keep it. So why don't we just sell it to them, right? And that way, and because you get that long strip down the side of Alaska, that kind of would sandwich British Columbia in between two American territories, and 
limits it limit its um, possibility of expansion and of that. So that was part of it. And then the next part of that was that um, we they hired us, our engineers, to go in and build the Trans Russia Railroad, the Trans Siberian Railroad. Right. And, and as early as nineteen early nineteen hundreds, they were actually doing engineering studies to create a tunnel link to Alaska through through the Bering Strait. Mm, it's amazing. Um, so even then they were talking about, and then you know various interests did not want that, um, and uh, I think maybe the flat earthers didn't want that. They uh, because you know that's where that's where the that's where the shutoff valve is. Um, that's funny. You you know what's interesting about the the uh, American involvement in the creation of the Trans Siberian Railway. There was a an interview a couple of weeks back with Jordan Peterson and Fred Kagan, and Fred Kagan talked about how the Americans were engaged in the Bolshevik Revolution, but they were engaged in a way so that they were there to to help the Russians. And um, specifically in the train in China, right? The Dutch China, Japan, there was this, this train that would, I think it's the Trans-Siberian, but it was, it was the Japanese leg of this train. And he claimed that, that, that the American troops were sent there in order to, you know, to fight the Bolsheviks. Well, that's not true. Hmm. The American troops were sent there so that they could keep the train secured so that the Cossacks and the white Russians couldn't take it Mm. and take the train into Moscow or St. Petersburg where they could fight. So they were Mm. basically holding Mm. off the use of that train until the Bolsheviks could get enough people and enough guns and enough armament, armaments, weaponry, gun, you know, to go out there and then take them on. Right, because if you look at the Bolshevik Revolution, I think it was something like two thousand people, like two thousand people mm-hmm. flipped Russia. Think about that. Mm-hmm. That's incredibly significant and a lot mm-hmm. of money. A lot of money. So, so it's these. So, but they can't take. See, this is really important to understand. Like they can't take Russia in full. Right, they have to take a certain part of Russia, and then at another part in time they'll go out and they'll take care of the rest, right? So the Americans actually played a role in keeping the white Russians from going into Moscow, St. Petersburg, and retaliating against the Bolsheviks. But the way that the, that Fred Kagan talks about it is completely revisionist. Mm-hmm. Like, he's basically saying, look, we have a history of being in that part of the world and defending these people, right, to keep them from falling to the to the you know the scourge right. and the yoke of communism right right, right that's right. completely wrong in, 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 in actuality it's it happens in reverse here hmm. so it's a there's this very interesting relationship with the United States and Russia that does have these ramifications right and you know when they go to overthrow the Czar that's one of the reasons why they do it it's not the only reason but it's one of the reasons because the central bankers are pissed. They're pissed that they got involved and they basically, you know, created a, a bit of a firewall there for a while right, in the civil right. war. 
So part of it is vengeance. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, because they're always angry. Um, And it's still the case. They're always angry at Russia for helping the United States become a counterbalance to England. And of course, England just spent its whole time um, through the Pilgrim Society that we've talked about previously, you know, maintaining control through the banking system, et cetera, of the United States. And the senior Um, executive service. Yeah, because even I was in college, you know, I was just, you know, I remember taking a course on on something having to do with the Soviet Union. And, um, and, and, you know, and it just became clear to me how alike the Russians and the Americans are. And, and uh, you know, between even with, love, with the literature and with the sports um, and with the arts. Military. You know, and the, and the military, they, you know, there was, um, there was certain, a certain amount of simpatico amongst the people that, you know, at various times people have tried to, you know, bolster. And um, it ends up, and it just ended up that the forces against it, have, as you can see, you know, there's just just this driving this false stake between us where we should be the best of friggin' friends. But it's kind of like the magic eye paintings where if mm. you soften your gaze and, and don't get lost, you know, looking at the trees instead of the forest, the there comes into focus a relationship with Russia that is on a spiritual level. There's something ineffable and very subtle of a connection with these two countries, these two superpowers who on the surface are adversaries, but as Steve was saying, underneath the surface, the people are really in in simpatico. There's something else that you can feel it, you can intuit it, you can't quite put your finger on it, but there's something there that someone doesn't want to happen. That there's, you know how they love to divide us here in the United sure. States, yeah, no matter what yeah. it is, it, it yeah. doesn't matter what it, whether it's the uh, generation gap, mm-hmm. whether it's black and white or religions or Republicans, Democrats, they're doing the same thing on a grand scale with countries. It's like, what can we do to keep a wedge in between these people? Because if those two populations get together for the force of good, we're done for. Right. We're out of here. Right. So and, and there's there, something there's, going yeah. on that, that we need to look at on that level. And there's clearly more of an opportunity for, say, Americans and Russians to have something in common than Americans and Chinese. I'm sorry. That's just the way it is. Well. Right. You know, and, be, and and the reason, the reason I say that, right, is because they're – in terms of religion, they they share a fundamental religious corporate you know principle between these two countries, which in China that's not the case, right? And especially now that you know for whatever reason Putin has decided to reinstate the Orthodox Church, so there is some of that, and that was all already there prior to the Bolshevik Revolution. And how many of us are grandchildren of Eastern European emigres? Yeah, there's that too. So I think to your point, Chris, there, there, there's a lot of truth there. And besides, if America can adopt Yakov Smirnov as one of its own, then, you know, then why couldn't we, you know, go a few oh, steps further? It's okay. Do you remember, do you remember him? He did, a, no. he did a, 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 a fairly nice movie. I forget the name of it. From Moscow something. With love? Moscow, from Moscow. From Moscow with love? With love? Not, not quite. No? 
I think he was also in that movie where Whoopi Goldberg becomes the coach of the New York Knicks. Wasn't he in that movie? Is it called Eddie or something like that? Could be. He was in a couple of movies. Yeah. yeah. Brief flash. He be- he became the butt of a lot of other comedians' jokes. By the way. Yeah, right, but then, and, yeah, and if it, that's if it, that's also the time, because mm-hmm. then then you had the uh, Russian invasion of Afghanistan, and then we were back, you know, anti-Russian. Right, so we're back into the propaganda world. We didn't go to the Moscow Olympics. Yeah, that was so weird, right? That was just such a weird. Well, they left. It was a weird that. deal. And that that was, I think it was that was a Brzezinski move because Brzezinski yeah. was working for Carter at that time, and he hated right. the Russians. He's Polish. He hates the Russians. Yeah. But he, but Brzezinski is. It's what's odd about Brzezinski is that even though he hates the Russians, he doesn't really classically fall into the neocon camp. Like he's kind of his, kind of his own weird agent. Yeah, like there, there's not a lot of crossover between. I mean, ideologically, they 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 certainly share something, but the neocons are Bolsheviks. That's the one thing that nobody really ever talks about. Like. Like ideologically, they descend from Bolshevik. They're Trotskyites, hmm. and then they eventually morph into the you know the modern American conservative. You know the hawk. Yeah, they, they yeah. The well, that's right. I think we've talked about them before. They're sort the of they're sort of a synthesis of of Marxist Bolshevism and um, you know and uh, and fascism. Yeah, you know so. California, this is getting back to the Alaska thing and the British Columbia thing. So, you know, I'm from California. When I was a kid, we'd go on these day trips. And um, one time we went to this place called Fort Ross. And Fort Ross is on the is on the coast. And it's actually a fort. Ross is Rus. It was Fort Rus. So there was a whole Russian colony oh, interesting. there on the northern coast of California. And in fact... There's a, a major river there called the Russian River, and it's not Russian like a river is Russian. It's R U S S I A N. So, uh, let me show you. The, let me show you guys this. This is actually kind of funny. Isn't there a Moscow, Idaho, too? Or something? I think there is. Yeah. So this is a story where apparently Russia has floated the idea that they should get Fort Ross back. This is recent, by the way. So this is kind of interesting. I'm going to play this curious get it back yeah so let's uh well if we can have nato bases in virginia we could have and we have chinese in canada do i have this columnists now tensions over u.s sanctions are prompting some russian lawmakers to suggest their country reclaim the fort abc7 news reporter cornell bernard has that story Maybe they're doing a little tour inside. Fort Ross is an amazing place on 3,000 acres. Check out the stunning views of the Pacific just off Highway 1. And then there's the rich history, reminding visitors that a lot was happening in Northern California long before the gold rush. Because most people don't know that there were Russians in California um, in the 19th century. The Russian River, I guess they named that for a reason. Russian traders settled Fort Ross in 1812. Their influence Mm -hmm. is everywhere, from the chapel architecture to the flag and interactive field trips for school kids, where everyone plays a part, even teachers. I am the commandant of Fort Ross, and he was in charge of, you know, running this Russia's remote outpost colony. The Russians only stayed here on the Sonoma Coast for about 30 years. In 1841, they sold Fort Ross to John Sutter. Now, some in Russia, want to take it back. 
This week, a high-ranking member of Russian parliament suggested that his country should reclaim territories like Fort Ross as payback for U.S. sanctions. It prompted this response from Fort Ross Conservancy CEO Sarah Swedler. It reminded me that um, America doesn't have a monopoly on crazy politicians. It's, it's not even <laughs> worth you know, talking about the specifics. Visitors had their own take. It's on U.S. soil, you know. I mean, I don't know. Come give it. You know, good luck with that. I mean, that's like saying, let's go get Alaska. They sold these places to us, so it's ours now. Sorry. Fort Ross became a state park in 1906. It's played host to Russian festivals and a meeting with former Governor Jerry Brown and the Russian ambassador in 2018. The Conservancy said it once accepted donations from Russian companies to keep the park going, but is no longer working with them. And make no mistake, Fort Ross remains a part of California. Unless the uh, pelt industry comes back with strong force, I don't <laughs> think there's any reason for the Russians to come back and take Fort Ross. On the Sonoma Coast, Cornell Bernard, ABC 7 News. Pretty interesting, huh? That's, it's interesting. I just don't get it. The I mean, what's the point? I mean, is, I, it just, is it just a needle? Yeah, I, 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 I think, think so. Like Why needle. not? I think but the like, Russians you know, are good at that. I think they like to needle. Yeah, the, the bear likes to poke the other bear. Right. Yeah. 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 Just, yeah. Well, good for so them. So people, some people may not understand that there was there was a pretty thriving Russian community there in the north coast of California. And Sutter uh, is one of these guys who's very influential in essentially flipping mm -hmm. California very quickly from a company? territory into a state. What's that? Sutter, isn't that a wine company? A it is. So, yeah. It's like really shitty wine. Is it? Yeah. Um, Sutter Creek, I believe, is the name of the winery. Uh, so there's Sutter, Sutter's Mill, which is theoretically where they discovered gold. And this guy named John C. Fremont, who quickly, very quickly moved uh, California from a territory into the Union. It doesn't, it doesn't take very long. So they're influential in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's interesting. Like we, there's this whole hidden history that people very don't interesting. Right. Really, and even what you're talking about with Catherine the Great and um, Alexander, right? Um, you know, maybe some people know about it, but it's not. I didn't know. And I didn't really know much about it at all. I just heard some things. But, you know, and this is a, this is just another point, then we can move on uh, if you'd like, that uh, I, I've come across it before, but I think it really cemented. I was going through um, Asha Logos' site, mm -hmm. and on his site, he has a number of, like, old history books. And I keep on hearing even Cliff High was talking about it. It's really important to find like books from a hundred years ago. Yep. Because because any, things that are written now are just are you're not going to find what people knew then in there. Mm -hmm. And so that was that's why I read the quotes, you know, the original quotes. And um, yeah, I just picked up a book uh, I haven't looked at, gotten into it yet by. Samuel Morse, the guy who did the Telegraph in the 1830s, um, yeah, uh, yeah, um, who wrote a book, who wrote a book about how the, about how the, um, the Jesuits and the uh, the Catholic Church and their influence and everything and, uh, and Samuel really, Morse wrote that. Samuel Morse wrote this book in wow, called um, Foreign Conspiracies um, Against the Liberties of the United States. How the Jesuits used the Vatican, foreign monarchies, and uh, the St. Leopold Foundation and subservient Catholic mobs to secretly infiltrate and control America. 
So wow. that's Sammy Morrison. I think it was in the 1830s he wrote this. Wow. So I just, you know, there's this idea of like finding these old books. Some people are reprinting them. Some companies are making it their business to try to reprint them. Um, you know, anything, because this is all uh, out of copyright. Anything over 100 years, I think, is out of copyright. So um, Ooh, maybe we should do anyway. That. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually really good. That's a good idea for you guys. Yeah. If I had time and if I had a staff, we'd be amazing. Um, but if anybody uh, out there want to help out the Crimmies, you know, I'm sure they the would moment, be happy to use your yeah, at the moment, services. At the moment, it's not even a paying gig for me. So <laughs> you know so anyway, but the point I, being that that this is great old that is that uh, even Samuel Morse, you know, you'd never think of was writing books on conspiracy. Yeah, things. that's interesting. Really interesting. Yeah, and he and he, of course, with the telegraph, the, you know, that was the way of communicating for yeah a while, right? I mean, pretty really innovative. Yeah, yeah. I think Jasper's a Russian spy. I think, think so. he is. I think he is. He's red, right? He's red. Yeah, you can wear him on your head. He's. he's, he's I think he's giving away his allegiance here. Mm -hmm. He's always in. He's always in on every show right he's listening he's in. chipped he's maybe listening. he's been chipped Rob. yeah he, he has been chipped i know he's been chipped hmm. i didn't chip him no. so what's going on with that chip right i mean uh -huh. is a chip it's like what's right here i've seen the x-ray it's right at the base of seriously yeah, yeah, so whoever owned him so maybe so maybe somebody's sending a little uh -huh. signal through the chip like go to the show now now pretend you like robert pretend you like robert <laughs> you see he just left just now <laughs> right steal Right, he, he, took he knows. He, he took knows I'm it. on to him. Steal just, the show. Yeah, he, he just got off the off the couch. Um, there's something else. Oh, oh, oh! This is I, now. I got. I got to bring it up because I don't want to forget about it. But I just did a webinar on the Sabian symbols, and mm -hmm. that book, Mandala by by Dane Rudyard, is out of print. Oh. And if you could somehow secure the rights of that thing, I don't know who you'd go to, but if you could somehow secure the rights of that, used copies of that are going for $200. Some, if they're in good condition, $350. Hmm. Yeah, well, you would have to either, you know, and because I'm not going to do it because a lot of people do these books and they're just the crappiest, you know, the crappiest productions. So I would have to, it would probably be worth it if it's not a really long book to have it like, you know, retyped and reset and, and all that. I mean, that would be the way you'd want to do it, like we did with the Fitzhugh Ludlow right. um, uh, books is to, is to make new books, but looking like the old books. Right. Yeah. So anyway, just a professional little. Yeah. And that was a good and we enjoyed. We had we were doing stuff. We were in and out. We had it on. Well, you, oh, right. You guys. Background. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's and, right. um, yeah. you know, but we thought it was really good. Cool. Well, why don't we transition into the Hunter the Hunter Biden talk? Oh boy, oh boy! Um, I sent you guys that um, that Substack yeah. article. Did you check that out? Yeah, and I, I, and I printed could. it. We did. A, we listened to a couple of videos, and and I just kind of blew through it, but I didn't have time to read it deeply. But I've got the gist, and I've already known the gist. But it yeah. was really hard to stomach the Ghislaine Maxwell. You know, I'm such a good person who loves the ocean. We're at the Terramar connection. Yeah, but I was observing her body language and her body movements, and she was very short of breath, and she was just breathing all from up here. So I don't know if she was really nervous or if this is her normal state, but if you go back and look at it, she's all up here, and she's just really 
forcing the air into her lungs. And right. it made me uncomfortable just to observe her body language. I don't know what. Well, maybe her. maybe we can play one of those videos too yeah. while we're talking about this stuff. So yeah. the, the laptop, it's interesting because I came up, so I had, a, I had a show earlier this week and I think it was last week. It was like the laptop in hell. And now it's become the laptop from hell. That's what it's known as now. The laptop from hell. Mm -hmm. That's what people are calling it. The laptop from hell. I've been hearing that for a while. Right. So this You're laptop right. has taken on this demonic. Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. And. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, well, you know, I would geez, say take a take a, a, a look at the visage of the owner of it. Now, can, right. an, can an object be possessed? An object can be possessed. I think an object can also be the object of possession. Right. And it could theoretically possess the person who thinks they're possessing the object. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So is the yeah. spirit of the day in that? Interesting that in possession, there's a correlation between the spirit and place. Mm -hmm. So why not? I don't see why not. If a spirit could be connected with a particular house or, or outdoor place or whatever, then why not? Certainly something like a laptop that's electronic. That carries Especially. in carrier waves, right? And, think and they're detrimental. So uh, you know, I don't know who was it. Was it was it Rudolf Steiner who was observing that electricity is like a degraded form? Yes. Of like something the etheric, yeah. something on the etheric realms. Yep. So yeah. It's a degraded yeah. form. So yep. why not? Why mm -hmm. would a detrimental spirit not be? riding those waves into this horrible equipment mm -hmm. that's yeah. giving off radiation. Yeah. That's something that Emily talks about in relationship with David Lynch and this whole idea of electricity and these beings riding on these yeah. electrical currents. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So with the laptop, right. So let's like, when we, we think of a person being possessed classically, like Linda Blair exorcist. That person is like a portal to to wherever that entity is emanating from, right? They're a portal, yeah. mm -hmm. right? So the laptop, which, and again, it's not just any laptop, right? It's a laptop that has all kinds of shit in it. Oh, God. Very demonic shit. Very dark. Really dark stuff. Not yeah. even the stuff that we, we talked about today with the, you know, with the with the the, you know, the Chinese channel, the old answer you know. or something. Yeah, yeah. I mean that that stuff is like photoshopped and, you know, it's clickbait. Really, it's clickbait. But there, so there are other things on that laptop, according to Jack Maxey, that once you see them, you can't unsee them, and because of that, apparently they they've cut, they've left that stuff alone, because you can be implicated when you look at that material. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And so infected, there's not to mention infected. That's right. So there's all of that. There's all of that really degraded, decadent and demonic material just from that place on the laptop. Then apparently there are all these transactions on the laptop. 
right? Then it implicate the big guy. The big guy and a bunch of other people as well. So even that, you have a spirit of corruption. The uncle. A spirit of corruption. Where did we hear that, right? That's in the Jezebel song. I wish we could because, play it, yeah. But. Spirit of corruption, spirit of greed. Uh, I, I heard my hearing is grief. Grief. Okay. Well, one of the other, either way. But there, it's in there, right? So this mm -hmm. laptop is this thing that is, it's almost like a demon box. Right, right. It's a Je the Jezebel spirit. <laughs> the Jezebel spirit. It really, it really is, right? So I agree. I have to agree. Now, what's also interesting is that apparently there are people that have their own versions of the laptop, right? It's kind of gotten out. There are multiple. Right. There are multiples. And now you have all this infighting going on with these people that have the laptop. Right. And it's and it's almost like the like the laptop is driving them mad. Right. There's like this other thing connected to the laptop. It's like, that's, uh -huh. that's, that's, that's a good insight. Yeah. Like madness. It's like, I, it's you like it's, they think that they're possessing it. It's really possessing them. It's, it's like, it's getting very weird with this laptop. It's driving the dialogue. Right. Yeah. I, I just want to mention while I'm thinking about it, no one talks about the previous laptop, the Jeffrey Weiner laptop. Oh, right. Which is like gone, forgotten. You know, and Hillary, and, yeah, Hillary and, Clinton's and laptop, that, and that was the one that supposedly had the the file marked insurance, which was the the stuff about Hillary. That, right. according to um, Eric Eric Prince of um, oh yeah, Blackwater of Blackwater, G, right. G whatever it is now, yeah. um, he said that you know that that if it drove you know hardened New York City detectives to weeping. True or not, whatever, that's the story. And vomiting. Um, right. So supposedly that laptop, you know, and that laptop has completely disappeared. There's no hide nor hair of it, at least in the, you know, in, in, the, in the discourse. So that's, that's uh, Anthony Weiner. Anthony, what did I say? Yeah, you said Jeff, Jeffrey, just to, you know. Oh, I, I, I conflate It's easy to morph right. him and Epstein, Epstein and together. Weiner. I get it. Yeah, 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 yeah. You got the wine, right? Yes, or Anthony. Right, right. As, or as I used to say, the Steins of the Times. Right. It's the Steins of the Times. That is funny. Um, yeah, so Wiener was just on WABC Radio with Curtis Sliwa, the guy that who started uh, really? the, yeah, yeah. the, the Guardian the Angels. Race, yeah. yeah, he was right. He, he lost to the mayor. He's got a new radio show. Tony Wiener has a new radio show. Get out. Of course. On Sirius. Or you're uh, not serious? Let's see what's it on. Hold on. I don't want to try this for for three weeks. I just want to read this article. Oh, come on, Washington Post. While well, you're looking for that, at every stage of possession, there has to be consent given. Yes, agreed. And think about that. Every time you have to consent to reading it. Oh, I read. Oh, yeah, I read the policy. I consent. I, you know, I agree. Yeah, oh. I agree. Yeah. We do it all the time. All the time. Yeah. So so it's on WABC. On WABC. Pr pretty significant 77. station. 77. Which is an oh, so it's a New York radio station. Well, it might be. Yeah. It's a New York radio station. So he's back in the news. <clears throat> okay, so he's reformed. He's a good dad now with his little um home Aberdeen whatever, Rosemary's baby. Handler. Exactly. 
So you're right. People don't really, and, and again, I mean, think about theoretically the impact it had on the people that, you know, came into contact with it. Mm-hmm. Yes. And yeah. had to look at it for professional reasons. Right. They hardened. These right. are hardened New York City police sure officers hardened. Yeah. who've mm-hmm. seen a lot of shit. And right. It made, to your point, Steve, it, it made them vomit and throw up. And some of them are dead now, right? Yes. 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 Some of them committed the old suicide. Mm-hmm. Right. So this whole idea of the spirit of possession inside of these boxes is kind of an interesting you know, theory and, and correlative for this Mm -hmm. whole idea of possession in general. And, and think about Hunter Biden as he's interacting with the laptop in whatever state he's in, right. Mm -hmm. In whatever demonic program is driving him. Theoretically that's also being imprinted into the laptop, right? So there's this transference that's going on. With this thing, what do they call? See, like a mnemonic device or something like that. Is that, is that what it's called? Mnemonics. Mnemonic devices is, is for memory. And that's just for you to mem- memorize something. Memorize, okay. Um, yeah. Well, you know, but that is, it begs an interesting question, doesn't it? Of, about that, um, there's sort of a spiritual, and I've used that in terms of non-physical, not not positive spiritual. Um, you know, like demons are spiritual um, aspect to everything. Because, because, because in the end, we're not physical beings, and we're primarily right. the spiritual um, manifestations, spirits, manifestations of, 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 our, of our higher spiritual self. And, um, and of course, this is the, uh, of Araman or, or Satan, whatever you want to call it, or it, is that, is, is to bring us into full, complete materiality which expresses itself in the world economic forum ideas and all that really is. is, is right. The, That's something I, I talked about. I think it was yesterday, this whole idea of materialism mm, versus right. the, yeah. And, and, you know, and it's right in the word Marxism, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's dialectic materialism, right. right. Taking from Hegel's Hegelian dialectics and just taking off the complete, any spiritual aspect that Hegel had in it. That's and right. just making it this this um this blunt movement of history mm-hmm. that just that goes back in thesis antithesis, but it's just all material, and thus we are all material, and uh, and 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 so expendable, right? Exactly, okay. material is expendable. Is the word that came into my head, mm-hmm. and and emotions and emotionalism are the fuel for that materialism. Very much so, and that's why bingo, and that's and that's been part of the education system. Mm-hmm. Since then, is is what you what we could call, for lack of a better word, emotional thinking. Mm-hmm. Right. How do you for, feel yeah. about this? And I feel this, and I feel that, and I'm triggered. Blah blah blah. Yeah, they call it value based education. Okay, right. Speak your truth, you know, which is fine, but you know, your truth may have nothing to do with anything. But know? it's their truth, and they're not going to listen to anybody else's and truth. So yeah, yeah, and it's like everyone gets their little fucking trophy for so their, everybody's for their been truth. kind of maneuvered into a corner. Really, you're in that corner, you're in that corner, and you stay in that corner. So what happens, and this is something that that uh, they've discussed on Jason Whitlock's show, in terms of this whole idea of subjectivity, that once everything becomes subjective, then then the you know the 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 goalposts keep getting moved for whatever 
you want to affirm as so-called reality, that right? Makes sense. So, so, so there are no objective kind of guidelines of, of what reality is like or what happens when you do a certain well, thing. There's a line in the Bhagavad Gita that says, I find no firm ground. So what happens when you are living in a subjective state and your identity is dependent upon whatever is being determined to be the right thing to say or do by the most dominant voice that's being you know, articulated in this conversation, people go mad. Yes, they, they do. They go mad because they have no center right? No center. And this is where we get into like Yates and the second coming, mm -hmm. which is really kind of what's taking place right now. Mm -hmm. you know, there's that line in the second coming where it's um, in the end, the, the worst are filled with passion and conviction while the best lack all, what is it? All, um, oh, fuck, mm, I, I, I can't remember, but they're, but they're enervated. They don't, yeah. uh, but it's basically the best lack all the worst are filled with passion and intensity while the best lack all conviction. There you go. Right. Mm -hmm. So when we see this kind of emotional Sturm and Drang, mm -hmm. we're seeing the passion and the intensity, right? Oh my God, this is so important. It's so important until the next thing comes along. And then that's really important. And the best lack all conviction, meaning, hey, look, I'm not getting in. You know, I'm not being drawn right. into this ongoing kind of subjective yeah, hell mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right and the, and 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 it ends up becoming and this is you can just see the movement of uh, philosophical and scientific history everything moves in further and further abstractions and i think we've reached the point of of complete abstraction so you're talking about um what are we abstracted from really we're abstracted from ourselves from ourselves as knowing who we are as as spiritual beings and what have you so you know so some things like marxism Pull you further and further, you know, away from any sort of solid, solid base from which to operate your life from. So Chris and I were, were Chris and I were very lucky to have studied with some really good people, and you know, spent eleven years studying a, a traditional system, which was the yoga system, and you know, the, the the yoga sutras and learning Sanskrit and all that. And what that has given us is a base, a really solid spiritual base, because it's not just night. It's just not enough to just have the experiences which which are really important but also to have uh, something to articulate them through so that you can live your life through those experiences right um and but what has happened now and, and especially with something like marxism which denies spirituality completely unless you're doing your ruba like the blm people um that's where you're, you know, that's, that's where you're stuck. So you, you end up further and further from that base and until the point where you don't even know it's there anymore. Right. That's right. So that's why, you yeah. know, I consider us lucky to, to, to at least have that foundation and as, you know, as screwed up as things get and as painful as things get, we still have that all the time, you know, to come from. And to go back to. So let's just take a look at like uh, extreme snowflake care and behavior. Mm -hmm. what, are, what are these people like representing? They're representing a form of possession. It feels like they're, they're possessed. Yeah. Like yeah. that woman on the plane, you know, snapping at the guy, young guy next to her. Yes. Uh, yes. Right. You, you, because you know, he had just come from a Trump rally or something. He was wearing some, some kind of Trump gear. And this okay. woman he was just sitting there minding his own business. She could not stop running him and Trump down. 
No. She was possessed. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, this is a good time to bring up. There are actually four stages. Before okay. we go there. Okay. Before we go there, I do want to look at this one article. Okay. Because sure. this article, I think, is a real skeleton key for this whole Hunter Biden thing. And this is this is this is uh, something that was sent to me by by Sam, and it's on uh, it's on Substack. Oh, good old Sam. Hey, we 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 um, talk to Sam every oh, once Sam. in a while. Yeah, Seems Sam. To be doing Sam, okay. Hi, Sam. Sam turned me on to this. So. For, apparently this is part of a series. So COVID-19 deep dive part five, human traffickers. And where do we say he's from? This representative is from Missouri. Is that what, yeah. is that what I looked up? Do you remember? I think Robert? so. Yeah. I think it is Missouri. Yeah. So I, maybe we can just play a little bit of this and kind of skim through this and then we'll come back to the possession thing. It's 10 minutes long. We won't play the whole thing. Okay. He was very good. Time for another Charlie Kelly Pepe Silvia tutorial here. Last week we covered the fact that the Fauci's organization, NIAID and NIH, the parent organization, were sending money to something called the Eco Health Alliance, which was doing dangerous gain of function research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, where it is increasingly likely that this entire pandemic started. Now, what's interesting is now the media. Uh, the very same media sources, mainstream media sources, who threw cold water on the lab leak hypothesis uh, a year ago and said it was crazy tinfoil hat conspiracy theories stuff, are now actually starting to reluctantly admit that there may be something uh, to it. But you have to go back and look at what the mainstream media was saying a year ago. The New York Times called it a fringe a theory dismissed by the scientists. That's going to become important in a second. I'll explain why. Uh, CNN basically parroted uh, Chinese Communist Party propaganda, saying that this was a disinformation effort on the part of the Trump administration. The Washington Post attacked Senator Tom Cotton and said that he uh, he fanned the the embers of what was it? Fanned the embers of a conspiracy theory that has been repeatedly debunked by experts. So the entire mainstream media's narrative was reliant on their expert sources, right? So let's plant a flag there and come back to that. Okay, it's good that people are now focused on all of uh, Dr. Fauci's role and then NIAID and NIH funding. So I'm going to stop that there because what he's talking about will become a big part of this post, the experts and mm. the money that's used to pay the experts in order to support this narrative that nothing happened there and you know it's just hogwash and you know this is really what we're dealing with et cetera et cetera et cetera they've done a good right. snow job with the experts they've right and they and they did this with nine they did this everything. after 9 11 right with all these military wonks who got on fox who got on cnn who got on msnbc i'm thinking msnbc was around that but uh, CNN was, Fox certainly was, and then you had the networks, and they get on there and they just say, "Oh yeah, they've got weapons of mass destruction." And but this would, is where the education are. system comes into play because that's where it starts. When you're in grade school, mm -hmm. you are to rely on authority. Authority, and they yeah. paid those guys. Those guys were paid, and they were paid by Raytheon and Rand and all these other corporations to go on there and basically lie through their fucking teeth so that the neocons 
could get their war. So this is this, so this is interesting, right? So it starts off here, and it gets into this ground truth network. This is where he's going with this, mm-hmm. and the ground truth network is NBIC, right? And the NBIC is, is getting money from the Department of Homeland Security, and what they're doing here is they're essentially paying these experts in order to back the narrative of NIAD and uh, the WHO and the CDC, right? So this is, this is part of what they're talking about here. Like, they, I mean, these are actual documents. So it says the NBIC is seeking market information to determine existing capabilities of ground truth networks, domestic and globally to support biosurveillance. I meet the following initial requirements. Provide Bio-surveillance. both what biosurveillance. Provide both direct and indirect access to a consortium of subject matter experts (SMEs) with global coverage in key areas, including the U.S., Asia, Africa, South America, etc. Network must contain experts in the fields of human, plant, food, environmental, and animal wildlife health. The entire biosphere. Provide NBIC with the identity, background, and credibility of the sources from whom information was obtained and whether or not each source can be identified and attributed in subsequent NBIC reporting and at what level federal partners only, SLTT, formal parties, et cetera. Page two, three, ability to have SMEs interface with NBIC analysts through written documents, emails, written reports, maps, data, oral communication, phone calls, conference call, and face-to-face meetings. Request information available to receive and respond with necessary information sharing requirements to requests RFIs within 48 hours respond to at least 50 RFIs within the performance period. So all of these things are guidelines for their contractors. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The people that they're taking that million dollar, uh, you know, grant from the department of Homeland security to pay. So mm-hmm. this is the bat, the background of how they're able to control the narrative and push their, agenda right push and whatever required right. to go to the experts it says it right in there up in that other paragraph they're required yep. to do that and yep. yeah and as we know the uh the agenda is fluid and they don't care if they contradict what they did before That's i believe right. we we may i'm pretty sure it's on your show because we don't talk to anybody else but you anyway but um we were um said at the beginning of the lockdowns that in, in a number of years, the New York Times are going to be saying, oh, we were always against the vaccine. That's right. We always yeah. knew what was going on. Right. We've you know? always been at we war were, with yeah. who? We were always, you know, we, we always, always knew there, were no me- we, there was Oceana. no weapons of mass destruction. Yeah. You know, they, it's just like, you know, they never say, oh, we fucked up. It just never happens. Right. You know, if it is, it's on a minor detail and, and you know, page 83. Right, exactly. This, I, did, I never knew of this man, Gallagher, uh, Congressman Gallagher. Right. Yeah. So but I think he really seems like he's got his act together and he's he's got a good, strong presence. Mm-hmm. And he feels very self-assured. I'm wondering if he would be a good ally for Madison Cawthorn because he's rather. You mean, you mean the Tom Brady clone? Tom Brady. clone. Oh, how, how is he? Tom Brady? He just looks I, like him. He looks like Tom. Brady. Does he? Well, yeah. he's a lot younger. Oh, he's but, got a lot of passion. But he's got. Boy, he's I mean, young, I, but- we, sorry, go ahead. I sat next to him at, at when at he showed meeting. up at, at the meeting of our freedom. Group. Oh, really? That's interesting. And, yeah, yeah the we one, were right next to him. Right where that, that little clip came out about him calling um, Zelensky a thug. 
Well, he called right. Putin a thug. He gave actually a, a really 15-minute talk on Ukraine that was fairly nuanced. But um, he's in a wheelchair, and he obviously works out because he, he had big-ass tattooed arms. He was like, he was exuding strength. I was really impressed. I didn't... So he's from, really neck, he's, he's from your neck of the he's woods, our congressman. Right? He's our congressman. Right. Okay, cool. And he was very passionate and very sincere and informed. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he also said it that someone asked him a question about Pelosi being drunk. And <laughs> he basically said, yeah, she's never sober. And he said, what did he say? Um, I can't be seen having lunch with Democrats. They, they will not be seen having lunch with me, a Democrat. They wouldn't dare because they would be censured. They'd be, well, they'd lose their committee positions. Pelosi would just wow. pack them off. Um, they can't even, you know, even people that he might get along with to, just to talk, you know. Um, wow. So he, they can't be seen with him now, especially. But I now. thought he was very brave. And for his age, he's only, what, 26? Mm -hmm. um, very well informed. I think there were some issues. I can't remember now. Maybe it was to do with the inoculations or something that he seemed like he needed a little help to understand. But So um, he, he busted out some eyes wide shut kind of stuff. Oh, my God. He? Yeah. And then McCarthy said, I'm going to have a talk with him. Well, who the hell are you? Right, exactly. So I'm, I'm wondering if this guy Gallagher would be a good ally. Anyway, that was a digression. But, so um, this is Nathan Wolf, and he is the founder of Metabiota. So he's one of Klaus Schultz's or Klaus Schwab's guys, people, right. World Economic Forum, Young Global Leader. How many times has he consented to letting in the dark forces oh maybe from birth who knows um so dr nathan wolf is the lori i loki hmm. interesting loki that's loki. interesting loki. oh look who's here why rosie's here rosie yeah come on up here you want to jump up here we brought him in here we go oh right, should i check here no. we go hey rosie what a, what a treat She's a beauty. beauty. Low-key business wire consulting professor in human biology at Stanford University. He is a founder of Metabiota, a company that specializes in microbial research products and services, and the chairman of Global Viral, a nonprofit that promotes understanding, exploration, and stewardship of the microbial world. Dr. Wolf received his doctorate in immunology and infectious diseases from Harvard in 1998, where no doubt he ran across Charles Lieber, I'm sure. Mm. He has received numerous awards, including a Fulbright Fellowship and the NIH Director's Pioneer Award. and was named a National Geographic Emerging Explorer in 2009. National Geographic shows up keeps on in interesting up. places. It keeps on coming up now. I didn't, you know, never thought. Oh, of yeah, they got, they got possessed. Yeah, I think so. And the Smithsonian. Right. Yes. Right. And it's, yeah. And, and you have to go back to their English, I assume English beginnings, you know, sending people all around the world. They're not sending them, you know, for the, for the pure joy of exploration. You know, they're, they're looking for acquisition manipulation. Right. Yeah, the botanical, the botanical people, et cetera. You right. know, we yeah. can add. Um, what else do we have here? Okay. This is a young global leader. Dr. Wolf has over eight years of experience living and conducting biomedical research in Southeast Asia, 
Sub-Saharan Africa, mm-hmm. and he currently coordinates activities of over 50 scientists and staff in countries around the world. So this guy is a somebody. Mm-hmm. Right. He has received support totaling some $60 million in grants and contracts from Google.org, the National Institute of Health, National Science Foundation, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the U.S. Department of Defense, among others. He has over 80 scientific publications and his critically acclaimed book, The Viral Storm, has been published in six languages and was shortlisted in 2012 for the Royal Society's Winton Prize. Metabiota are directly linked to Echo Health Alliance, which is unsurprising, there you go. given that their stated objectives of zoonotic virus surveillance run along similar lines. In fact, Nathan Wolf sat on the board, on uh, the editorial board of Echo Alliance, Echo Health Alliance, as well as DARPA's now defunct Defense Science Research Council. DARPA is another one. However, it gets even worse. Nathan Wolf is also directly linked to Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell, it is one of the founding citizens of Ghislaine Maxwell's fake philanthropic organization, Terror Mart. Let's just play a little bit. Of this. Yeah, before you hit that, meet virologist yeah. Nathan Wolf. Good. I just wanted, um, <laughs> now I forgot. Um, I just wanted to add in something that you mentioned for the first time, dawned on, uh, made sense. Back when the, the Parkland shooting went on, and we're looking at the uh, the father of, and I can't remember his name, the, the guy who was kind of the, the main focus of like, shooting the film, shooting the, the the movies that were, you know, obviously of the fake, yeah, David Hogg. Huh. Um, you look at it, was it, it was his father, right? And he yeah. just oh, had right. this amazingly long resume, you know, and you, and it's like, and he was an intelligence, wasn't right? He? Well, that's that's the, that's the key, so you know, it's yeah. like, how do these people look like they've got 75 lives crammed into one, right. you know, right? Yeah. So much going on, head of this, head of this, running this, running that, yeah. I, 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 think, I think a lot of that is fake. Exactly. That's yeah. my point. You know, this is, they, mm. these are all created people. They're not real people. They're all golems in a sense. Mm. They, right. They're all created people because, you know, I freaking, you know, it, all year long, I publish one book. I think I've accomplished something, you know, um, it's, it's just amazing. You know what? Yeah. So yeah. They, so yeah. Obviously, these are not people, but sort of, you know, the pimple on, on, on the head of something. Right. It's like, yeah, think about managing all these different people, projects, platforms, ideas. Well, oftentimes when you sit on a board, it's just a show. It's not, you don't really actually do anything. You don't, you know, maybe once a year you go to a meeting. Right. Right. So I'm on the board of this, that, and the other thing. Yep. That's true. That's true. But this guy has his hands in research. But this is running stuff. This isn't just being on the board. Yes. But the boards are like, you know, it's like the old monarchy, you know, everybody's related to everybody else. That's right. You got people that sit on the board of General Motors that sit on the board of Standard Oil. Mm -hmm. Gee, what's going on? It's a good gig. All right, let's play a little of this here. Who was dubbed the Indiana Jones of virus hunting. He sits on the board of EcoHealth the same company under scrutiny for manipulating bad coronaviruses at the Wuhan lab. In 2011, Nathan Wolf published a book entitled The Viral Storm, The Dawn of a New Pandemic Age. In the book, Wolf thanks 16 friends for contributing their skills to his work. One name listed was Jeffrey Epstein. Here is Nathan Wolf pictured with Ghislaine Maxwell at the Lincoln Center in 2012. Here's Nathan Wolf with Ghislaine Maxwell at the X Prize Gala in 2011. 
and Wolf was even a founding member of Ghislaine Maxwell's fake ocean charity Terramar, as archived on Terramar's own website. Terramar connects to many shady Epstein-connected characters. Here's Wolf endorsing Ghislaine's Terramar on Twitter in 2013, stating, quote, Proud to be a cyanobacteria ambassador at Terramar Project, unquote. Needless to say, Wolf appears very tight with the two notorious sex traffickers. So who is Nathan Wolf exactly? Well, Nathan Wolf is affiliated with the United States Intelligence Apparatus, the CIA, serves on DARPA's Defense Science Research Council, was funded by the United States Department of Defense, Google, Bill Gates, and the National Institutes of Health. He is a major player on the world stage. His company, Metabiota, is funded by InQtel, which is the CIA's technology arm. Former CIA Director George Tenet said of InQtel, quote, In 1999, we chartered InQtel. The InQtel Alliance has put the agency back at the leading edge of technology, unquote. Nathan Wolf's Metabiota was also endorsed by one Hunter Biden. As stated, Wolf serves on the editorial board of EcoHealth, the same EcoHealth that was awarded a grant by Fauci's National Institutes of Health in 2014 to study the emergence of coronaviruses, six years prior to COVID. This research then appeared to turn into the manipulation of coronaviruses called gain-of-function research, which created much more transmissible viruses, perhaps like COVID-19. Wolf is also the founder of the organization Global Viral Forecasting Institute, or GVFI, a company started in 2007 to study infectious diseases, their transmission between animals and humans, and the risk involved with their global spread. In 2013, Nathan Wolf sent out Joseph Fair, his vice president, directly to the Wuhan lab. Here is GVFI's Dr. Joseph Fair meeting with Shi Zengli the main researcher at Wuhan Lab. So here we have two shady Nathan Wolf affiliated companies associated directly with the Wuhan Institute of Virology, EcoHealth, and GVFI. Here are pictures archived from Wolf's GVFI's website, the so-called virus hunter himself, bats, bat virus samples, and bat imagery. Nathan Wolf also collaborated with the president of EcoHealth, Peter Dozak. Peter Dozak, the main suspect behind the Wuhan lab leak theory. An archived article from 2008 states, quote, Dr. Wolf is working with Peter Dozak, the Consortium for Conservation Medicine, to study the so-called wet markets of China, where SARS began. They will inspect the animals sold in them and test their stall holders and customers for signs of dodgy viruses, unquote. That's 12-plus years prior to COVID-19. Prior to the pandemic, it appears EcoHealth and Wolf's GVFI were the only U.S.-based organizations researching bat coronavirus evolution and transmission in China. Peter Dozak's and Nathan Wolf's companies, which appear to be controlled by the intelligence apparatus, quite possibly created the pandemic through gain-of-function research and were sent out to cover up the lab leak theory which they created in the first place. Oh, and by the way, in Nathan Wolf's book, Dawn of the Pandemic Age, Wolf also thanks Boris Nikolic, 
the executor of Epstein's will. Nikolic, who was infamously pictured at Epstein's mansion with Bill Gates and Epstein himself back in 2011, would found Particles of Humanity with Robert Langer, the founder of Moderna. Particles for Humanity openly endorses a skin-embedded mass surveillance tracking system. So that is Nathan Wolf. Particles for Humanity. So mm. I never heard of Gallagher before. He's he's formidable. Yeah. I've never heard of him anywhere in the news. So yeah, so interesting. The um that let's, that, let's the, play let's play this Glay Maxwell clip real quick. Very little. Very little. On the stage here, we have Glenn Maxwell, founder and president of the Terramar Project, a nonprofit. Was it a high school or something? Global ocean community to protect and promote sustainable development of the ocean. Glenn is easily one of the smartest, most fascinating people I've ever met. This is proven by the fact that she holds a bachelor's and master's degree from Oxford University, is a private helicopter pilot, a trained EMT, a qualified ROV, which I had to look up what that was and a deep worker submarine pilot, in addition to being fluent in four languages. This is what I I had written down before I realized that she spoke at the UN nine times since the last time I saw her. project called the Terramar Project. It's an ocean-based digital platform to, uh, which I'm gonna be talking to you about. Yeah, her breathing is really shallow. Watch her breathing. I just want to go back briefly to talk to you about why I got involved in the ocean and I- uh, Nothing can come from her heart. history so i started uh diving when i was nine having become anyway so yeah i just wanted to hear her voice yeah i had never heard her voice before yeah i i have but not in that context so for people who are interested in this article i'll leave a link in the uh, in, in the in the uh show notes here and here we go it goes right into hunter biden yeah in 2009 he founded Rosemont Seneca. The firm also has provided funding to Metabiota and their operations in Ukraine. So it all ties together here, right? And I guarantee you, if you go deep enough in that laptop, this stuff will just pop. Ooze out. Right. right. Well, ooze yeah. out. Yeah. yeah. It's exactly. A, yeah, it's there. It's, I mean, I've heard people talk about it that it's there. And so you can see where we have Metabiota at the center in this entire flow chart and who's... Wow connected with it and there she is mrs biscuits <laughs> wearing wearing her uh ukrainian blue sweater as a signal virtue mm. so th- i'm gonna put the link in here when it was it's good a, yeah it's a really good thorough piece that connects a lot of different dots yeah and it all comes back to hunter biden right hunter biden is like the the, the keystone to this really? whole thing he really is Pull that out, the whole edifice yeah. comes apart. Exactly. And then and now we have some this other interesting wrinkle is that Joe Biden, I think is about to be managed out. Oh yeah. It feels yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Because Peppermint Patty is leaving. She's leaving the show. Is she, she's insufferable. Is she, you know, everyone she just she just got a deal, I think, with CN uh, MSNBC. To have her own show. So she's leaving now. She's leaving the the Biden, whatever it is. 
And yeah, uh, and I mm. and wait wait for about a month. She'll have a, a book deal with Simon and Schuster. Oh, they've got plans dollars. for they've got plans for peppermint patty. So there's this video out. It's a very brief clip. It's been out for a while, and it's actually when Rush Limbaugh was alive and Biden was president, and he said that when Obama wants to pull the ripcord on Biden, it'll happen. You'll see it. The press will turn on him and people inside their own administration will turn on him. That started to happen, by the way. It has. Mm-hmm. Started mm-hmm. to happen. Not so he's science. No. So, no. so 40, 46 has outlived his supposed usefulness. Right. Well, we're all surprised he lasted this Wait, long. Uh, I thought he'd last a month, but I, I was wrong. But I right. guess things are not, uh, well, I think Harris, even, even if it has been a disappointment to them, even on their own level. Um, so I, I think what's behind, I, I don't think things are set up for Biden to be taken out yet. Well, I, I think they'll, they'll be, they'll bring Harris in, right? They'll bring her in and then right. they'll, I well, think they'll bring Buttigieg right behind her. And then the question is, does Harris last? Could she possibly? Right. Well, is and the question also, I, and maybe I don't know specifically. So, doesn't uh, does a new vice president have to be approved by the Senate? Yeah, but that would be easy, I think. Pretty much a slam dunk. So, how long would Harris last? Harris may not even last her own term, and all of a sudden you're dealing with you know Pete Buttigieg, President Buttigieg, which yeah, I don't was, think so would be. How does Buttigieg come into play and not Pelosi? Oh, well, they want, so first of all, this is just my own opinion, but they need to have a man behind Kamala and they need to have a white man behind Kamala, but it can't be. Why? Why? Because it's, it's about positioning and hierarchies. But I thought it went to the speaker of the house. No, 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 no. 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 no, Only only if they both get taken out. Right. Oh, right. So know that piece of it. Right. So Harris moves in. Oh, okay. And I would say Buttigieg is the guy that, you know, gets the, gets the vice presidential nod. And then how long, how long will it be for Harris to be in that position? You could see a sea change of two presidents by the time 2024 rolls around. It could be, you know, um, so, and maybe, so and maybe they're holding out for the midterms that to see, how, kind of far see how well they can control them. Yeah, well, because if they if they, you know, if they lose the house. Right. Um, if you know, you know, and, and I and I think I, I think the reason why this is happening it has something to do with the laptop. The laptop is like this wild card <laughs> that's been thrown out there. It really and, is. And now, you know, they're looking around. And go, OK, well, you know, all the goods are in that laptop and they all lead to the big guy. we got to get rid of the big guy. It's time. Right. So even right. now we you, really need to bring in the framework of possession. Yeah. So the this agents, the, the agents of the Lugan press, like the New York times and the Washington post are now admitting that the laptop is there and legit. Right. And that gives it the possession because when we talk about the press and the media, it's not they have the, the ability to literally possess people's attention and yes. people's mm-hmm. yes. uh, ideologies and even to some extent people's memories oh absolutely so this i think this is where we could get into the possession thing right so there are two things so then 
how does possession occur? What are the stages? There are four. And then with exorcism, how is it extracted? There are six. Okay. So I don't know if it'll help if I put the light on. Yeah. It'll help you. It helps a lot. I don't know. It'll help me. Um, so the process of possession is in four stages. And it's hard to pin it down in retrospect, but it has been done by interviewing the people who have been possessed and, and gone through exorcisms. But the first is the actual entry point. And that's the point at which the evil spirit enters an individual and a decision, however tenuous, is made by the victim to allow that entry. And oftentimes it, it hinges around some kind of a, maybe an obsessive thought that a person has or a very distinct interest in something where they're obsessed with it. There was a case of a woman who was in college and she was in a um, philosophy major and her courses were in philosophy and she was obsessed with certain details. And then someone shows up in the park that she goes to and sits on the bench with her and has these deep conversations and draws her in. And it was never really determined, well, was that a physical person or was it in the etheric? But th however tenuous, there's a, a welcoming in. It's like the number 23, right? The whole story about yes. being obsessed with the number 23. Yeah. Right. Cosmic trigger. Yeah, the cosmic trigger. Um, then is the stage of erroneous judgments. The possessed has, uh, by the possessed in vital matters as a direct result of the allowed presence of the possessing spirit and apparently in preparation for the next stage. So you, you're, you know, your judgment is affected. Right. All right, you're starting to make, well, that's where the emotions come in. So if you disturb someone's emotions, then their judgment is off. So the third step is voluntary yielding of control by the possessed person to a force or presence he clearly feels is alien to himself. And as a result of which the possessed loses control of his will and so of his decisions and his actions. So now there's like a more aware state of mind that there is something going on, but you still, because it's the rewards are good. It's like you keep going for the dopamine hit. So you keep saying yes, yes, yes. But you're aware that you're entering into choppy water. Once the third stage is secure, extended control proceeds and may potentially reach the point of compliance, which is what's called perfect possession. And when there's a state of perfect possession, that means if it's actually perfect possession, even an exorcism can't undo it. That's so, so, so let's stop here just and just mm -hmm. kind of apply this to, you know, the collective. What were people obsessed about from 2016 to 2020? Bad men arms. That's right. And and they whipped that up. They sure whipped that up into a frenzy. So that's a, that that is a stage. Right. It is. It is absolutely yeah, Trump, a stage. Trump yeah. derangement and then called derangement for nothing. Yeah, Trump derangement syndrome. So then um, let me see where I am here. Okay. Um, at every new stage and during every moment of possession, the consent of the victim is necessary or possession cannot be successful. 
Once consent has been given, its withdrawal becomes more and more difficult as time goes on. That makes sense. Now, for the exorcism itself, there are six stages. Hold on one sec before we go there. Mm -hmm. I want to just bring this into the conversation as well. Yeah. So let's say, for instance, that part of this thing that goes on with possession is connected to obsession, but then the individual has to do something and become complicit, right? They have to become complicit mm -hmm. with this thing that's overtaking them. Mm -hmm. And if we zoom out and look at the orange man bad mm -hmm. and the people that were obsessed with that, like what would they do over the course of that period of time? Well, obviously what, what happened is that they made decisions about who they were going to relate with or not, right? Isolation. Isolation and family members. And distancing. Distancing, but the but the distancing and the cutting off of those relationships mm -hmm. is sacrificial. Yeah, good, good. They are sacrificing mm -hmm. something that they've loved, either a friend, a dear friend, or a family member, right? And they are sacrificing and giving that sacrifice over to the thing that they are obsessed about and then possessed by. So there's your complicit piece around. And they know probably that they're doing this and they oh, can't yeah. stop it. And they can't stop it. And we, you know, we have a friend who shall remain nameless, whose family distanced themselves from her and saying right. that she was a white supremacist, which is like, I mean, so off the charts, not true. For, <laughs> it made not, no sense. For not getting inoculated. Yeah, yeah. I mean that, but that made her a white right. supremacist and what have you. But so does that make sense? Can you can we like there's there's an operation going on here, right? Well, that's why I I was excited about these two books. So, you know, the uh, windswept house mm -hmm. gives you a great understanding of how this dark force first came into the Catholic Church, and why wouldn't you go right for the main target, right? So just go right to the heart of the problem get get any force of good in the world turned and flipped and then from there you work out to all the other heads of government okay but that's how i see it so that kind of excited me when i saw that and i saw the parallels to what was going on with the trump administration what was going on with the pope how they infiltrated there and then what was going on with trump that's what i saw so when you have when you enter into an exorcism and then it would be really great as, as we go along, if we could relate this to where we are today as a people, as a planet, sure. actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the first thing you have to do is go through a very extensive, very extensive psychiatric evaluation to be sure that there's not some other force at work here. And, and it really is truly- Like a chemical imbalance or something like anything that. Anything like that. Yeah. So it really truly is a possession. So right. that gets out of the way first. It's usually carried out at the home of the possessed. So it's got to be in a place where that person is familiar. The actual room is most often one that has some special significance for the possessed person, like their bedroom or something like that. And there's a close connection between the spirit and the physical location, which I think is key. Just reading so that. So we got to go to the White House then, right? I mean, that's where it's got to happen. 
Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's a good point. And this runs through mm -hmm. virtually every exorcism and must be dealt with as a fact. The room must be cleared of all furniture and movable objects for obvious reasons. They'll be flung all over the place. Only a bed or a couch is allowed. And there's a table with candles, a prayer book, and um, just only accoutrements that the priest would need. And kind of like that anyways, church scene we saw at the beginning of the, of the show today. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Only pared down. but And the windows are usually boarded up mm -hmm. so that no one's defending. Kind of like the White House, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. oh, very good, Robert. <laughs> keep going. Keep going. All right. No one but the exorcist may speak with the possessed at all. You do not get drawn into anything whatsoever. Only the priest does it. The church provides an official text for the exorcism, but it's it's merely a framework. So they have their little steps that you go through right. with prayers, like you said. And then, oh, then my note about perfect possession is fully complete and cannot be reversed. Um, so, find my numbers here. Okay, so the six stages then are presence, pretense, breakpoint, voice, clash, and expulsion. Presence, everyone in the room is acutely aware of an alien presence and it's, there's no point to it. It's no, it's not like, oh, it's over here, it's over there, but it's it infused in the whole space. Yeah, I think we can agree that we agree <laughs> there's an alien presence. Right. So that <laughs> active in the world. Yeah. And everyone can feel it and everyone's on yeah. edge. Right. Pretense. Yeah. The evil spirit hides behind the possessed. Mm. And the priest must force the spirit to name itself. Sometimes mm. the exorcist cannot shatter the pretense for days. And if he fails at that, all is lost. Hmm. So it makes me think of all these organizations that pass themselves off as beneficents. So, oh, this, this, you know, UNICEF is the world for the children. And, you know, they send these. You know what it reminds me of, actually? It reminds me of trying to get Katanji Brown Jackson to define what a woman is. Ooh. Name yourself, right? Name yourself. She couldn't even name herself. Yeah. Wow. And and my, you know, if, if in a perfect world, my response to her when she said, <laughs> when she said, you know, um, I'm I, I'm not a biologist. I can't tell what a woman is. Well, I'm not a proctologist, but I can tell I know an asshole is. That's great. That Steve, but that's mafia, right? I want that on my mafia. want that on my fucking tombstone. Okay, yeah. I'll make sure it's done. Oh, All right, let me argue. Oh, I hope not. I don't know. Um, Breakpoint is number three. So this is complete and dreadful confusion. A peculiar pain of apparent con contradiction of all of your senses. So there's synesthesia. Everything is, that, is that is that in the person? Is that in the exorcist or is that in the person who's possessed? It's in the exorcist. So and the exorcist a, has synesthesia. Yes. Mm. Yes. Wow. So it's wow. like this, this, it comes in and it's just like, well, it's like an MK ultra shattering, you know, like everything is splintered. And so you're, you know, you're hearing through your mouth and your taste and you're smelling through your ears and, you know, it's, it's all a jumble and, and mass confusion takes I bet place. Benito knows about that. Who? Benito. He's somebody who watches the show. Oh, oh. okay. Maybe he does. 
a peculiar pain of apparent contradictions of all the senses, synesthesia. Right. The breakpoint is reached at the moment when the pretense has finally collapsed altogether. So there's no pretending that this isn't happening. And the spirit now acts personally and speaks in words like I or we or our or mine instead of pretending it that it's the possessed who's talking. So now that this is out in the open, and I think that's pretty much where we're at right now. We're getting very close. And we well, I was on I see a lot what's really out in the open. So so I was on with Nish yesterday and mm-hmm. we kind of got into this a little bit, but not through these very stages. And I was talking about um, the South node in Scorpio and how mm-hmm. things are revealed, how things are revealed, right? So when we had the South node in Sagittarius, what was revealed was lawlessness, right? Because Sagittarius represents law and, and there was no law that was happening. Like all this stuff was going on and nobody was, you know, they were doing the crime, but not, you know, doing yeah. the time. Very much so. Right. So now we have the South node in Scorpio. And if that, continues in that direction this gets to what you're you're talking about here chris and that they will openly state and it's happening now it is right like there is this guy who has a twitter account who was asking people if they knew like what type of porn and what level of porn would be good to introduce to children yes right so this is what's happening now yes Yes, it is. It, they're starting to speak mm-hmm. in a way where they're revealing themselves. And they're like, what are you going to do about it? Yeah. Exactly. That's what's that. And we're going to see more of that. I'm telling you. I believe it. it's mm-hmm. going to get more brazen it's right here. That's right. Now, this is all out of Malachi Martin's book, uh, Hostage to the Devil. And mm-hmm. hostage actually refers to the priest. He puts himself in between the possessed and the evil spirit. Right. And he offers himself up as a hostage to save the person who's possessed. Okay, so the fourth stage is the voice. And when the voice shows up, it's completely debilitating. It's this, it starts out like a very slow rumbling kind of garbled. And you're, you're just like straining to understand the words and you can't. And it's very distracting and it must be silenced by the invocation of Jesus and the church and not by the, by the priest's own volition. So it's got to be like Jesus or the church has to be the intermediary. You don't come from your own ego to defeat this. If you, once your ego enters into this, you're done for, you've been defeated. So, but it's very disturbing, deeply disturbing, and almost on a physical level that this voice is so discordant. Then stage number five is the clash. And this is the nucleus of the singular battle of wills. So now they're at it. Now the gloves are off and they're just, it's, it's all fisticuffs between the exorcist and the evil spirit. And the priest must actually bring this on. He must provoke this to happen, that there has to be this battle between good and evil. And I think that's where we're at. Um, If he cannot get the spirit to engage here, again, all is lost and the exorcist is defeated. And this is a crucial point 
So he has to antagonize and get this evil spirit to come out and actually do battle mm -hmm. and show itself. If he has not been able to until now, he must finally force it to give its name and then, and then pursue for as much information as he can. The more the spirit is forced to reveal in the clash and its aftermath, the more sure and easier it will be for the expulsion when the moment comes. So this has to take place, it's got to be revealed. So to, to get the spirit to make its name, and I just keep remembering, was it who was it patrice colors who did that she did that uh performance where she had the angel wings on and the real crazy outfit and she kept saying say their names say could their be names. it sounds um, like something that may have, but could the do. people did do that yeah what i don't know if it was her or someone yeah. else in the movement but say their names of the dead people well it could also i don't know well, that was her whole related. thing was was to invoke the spirits of the, of the dead, dead to to help BLM. Right. right. That was the, the Yoruba thing you were talking about. Right. Um, to force complete identification is a mark of domination of one will over another. Mm -hmm. So that's crucial. Um, the spirit itself seems to suffer in these battles. As in Jesus uh, exorcism, he sends the demons into the swine. So in these exorcisms, the in one of the case histories, the demons are actually arguing with the priests, like, well, where are we going to go? You have to send us somewhere. We, you know, we need a place to live. We need a body to live in. Even the Christ sent us into the swine. So it, it, they somehow have to have a place. They're connected with place. Mm -hmm. That seems to be a really important part. And that's pretty much, that's, those are the six stages. I think I got them all. Interesting. Then, yeah, I'd say we're pretty well along here. Oh, here we go. So stage number six is the expulsion itself. So mm -hmm. the evil spirit does not give it up its place easily. It claws and fights and deceives and even risks being, it's killing its host mm -hmm. before it will be expelled. A struggle torturous beyond imagining, an open violence that leaves all subtlety behind. What, how, what has possessed, what had possessed is now forced into the open. So the exorcist comes under fatal attack at this, at this point. Mm -hmm. He is attacked by a stench so powerful that many exorcists start vomiting uncontrollably. And there's a pain in the physical body and also a deep pain in the soul. He calls finally on the spirit to desist, to be dispossessed, to depart and to leave the possessed immediately. If the exorcism is successful, this is what happens. The possession ends, the sense of presence is suddenly absent. There's dead silence and sometimes there are receding voices as they leave. Hmm. Interesting. So I don't know. Do we need an army of exorcists? Do we all have to play the role of exorcists? What, how does this play out with what we're living through right now? 
Well, if you're going to be an exorcist, you need an exorcism kit. Home, a home <laughs> kit. Right. $400. Yeah, so the, so the real legit ones tend to be older and a little more expensive. Wow, look at it that. It may have been used a few times, right? Wow. So it's all there. You got your Bible. You got your stakes. You got your cross. You got your vials of holy water. That's the, wow. That's... You got the mirror, right? So and wow. all, all in a little coffin. All in a little. So if you are planning on taking up exorcism wow. as a... Uh, as a you know, a well, side it's hustle. an astonishment to me that anyone would have the courage to do so that. You'll need this. Look, your little garlic thing. Is that garlic right there? Oh, mm. is that what that is? Yeah. Sure. So to keep you, it in the kit to, um, to keep it away. But when you look at these satanic rituals, you know, at, at the Super Bowl and where else? What was the one in England where they did the thing about the pandemic? Before the Olympics. The Olympics. Olympics. Right? The Olympics. Yeah. Um, but really, when you look at Madonna's. Behavior, oh, the famous one where she was right? Isis Baphomet. And that was at the uh, Super Bowl. It was a Super Bowl show. Unbelievable. Mm -hmm. Tell me that's not out in the open. They're like, oh, it was totally out in the open. You no, know, just like rubbing your nose in it. But so, even something like what happened at the Oscars with Will Smith. Yeah. And, and Chris Rock. That. I mean, let's I mean, that's that. that there was an element of possession there. Something. There was like at the end. Even though, you know, Will Smith is smiling and everything when he leaves. Mm -hmm. Right. When he, when he starts, like, shouting out, you know, keep my wife's name out of your blah, 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 mouth. Mm -hmm. Like, he's almost possessed there. He feels possessed. Well, he certainly right. flew into action, didn't right. he? Right, because once he crossed that line, he couldn't uncross it. That's right. You know, once you got out of your... You broke what is it called the fourth wall or something the fourth like wall. that? Yeah, what right? is that? That's the wall between the, uh, the the stage and the audience. Yeah, and so he broke that fourth wall, oh, I don't know. and and then all of a sudden it became a whole different thing. And that's the point of acquiesce to the to whatever the possession was, whether it was to anger or whether whether it was scripted. You know, I can't tell from here, um, but you know, it's not a lot. I, I think I think it was partially scripted, and then I think it went into a direction that is, yeah strange feel like it yeah, yeah that could yeah. have been the case yeah or... i wonder if i wonder if um it was scripted except that um chris rock didn't know i think he knew that something might happen right okay here's where will's going to come up and point his finger at you or something like that oh really you think right it wasn't a you know it wasn't a, a serious hit no, he used his fingers for crying you know. out loud. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was using mm -hmm. his fingers. It hit him on the cheek. His face was a little sideways after that. Some people said he had a like a like a um uh, a pad. You can like when you look at his face, there's like this thing that's it looks like it's a, a pad of some sort. Oh really? But I've actually seen that on other faces, by the way. And I'm and they're not being hit. So I'm, I'm tending to think like what's really going on with people and, and, you know, and their, their physiognomy. I've seen that before in other people. Hmm. You don't really need a pad for a right, finger slap, not yeah. a finger slap. Right. Not if it's among actors. Right. Yeah. You don't really need that. So no, I think that, that you've seen it on other people. What, what I have. You, but what if you, you see other punches or other, what if no, you know? just like people's faces aren't, it's almost like they're pieced together in some ways, you know, they're not like just completely one 
continuous surface well, those, of skin. Like yeah, they well, sculpted? Those, well, those rubber face coverings are astonishingly good. They're astonishing. You know. I'm, sure I'm wearing one right cool. now and you can't I, even tell, I, right? I didn't even I, know. In fact, I knew you were Joan. This is Joan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. We're actually opposite each other. Right. We've been, we've been doing this for years. Do you remember, do you remember like those, um, the Looney Tunes? Oh, yeah. Those, those cartoons. And there was oh, yeah. invariably a scene where they would like take off their mask and then they take off their mask and they take off. Remember those? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And they'd like, it's like, okay, who's behind the mask? Yeah. And eventually they, they'd get to like, maybe they were each other, right? Like Bugs Bunny was Daffy Duck and vice versa. Uh -huh, uh -huh. They would do that fairly often right. in those cartoons. Didn't, didn't they do that in the prisoner too? Where they were, you know, going. We're not going to give away the prisoner. Steve, we can't give away the prisoner. No. Oh, okay. That, that's, that, that is a, a that's that's, that's a big spoiler. <laughs> big spoiler. Right. So Steve, Steve is referring to the TV series The Prisoner. Yeah. Which is a great TV series, by the way. If you have time and you're bored over a weekend, let's say you're reined in on a weekend, watch The Prisoner from start to finish. Mm -hmm. It will change your life. Maybe not in a good way, but it'll change your life. Open your eyes a bit. Right. Yeah. There's a lot of things in the prison. Like there's a there's a uh, an episode in the prisoner where I think it's the prisoner. I always get it confused, like with the Avengers, like because mm. they're running at the same time. One of those shows has an episode of this thing where they're learning things at a really rapid rate through like subliminal downloads that are coming to them, mm. like this whole speed learn thing. I think it might be the prisoner. Yeah. Um, but the, it, the prisoner's been a brilliant. long time, but it's definitely worth revisiting. I think Michael Hoffman talks about that in his books and uh, maybe James Shelby Downard, because that comes up in their books. I I have a copy. I have a I have the, the box set of the prisoner. So oh, I have right. all the episodes on DVD. But you can watch them now. I think they're I think they might even be on YouTube. Right. So we're gonna go back for a revisit of I Claudius too. Oh, that'd be interesting. Oh, it's which is which, pure which, genius. Fits, which I think will fit perfectly over it's things. So well done. You know. Didn't Robert Graves write that? He did. He did. He did. did. Yeah. But the, it, but the central, the best character is Livia. Um, see, um, she Augustus is Nancy Caesar's Pelosi. Wife. She's like, but with a brain. But with, you know. with a brain and just deliciously evil. Didn't Robert Graves write The White Goddess? Wasn't that one of yeah, his? Brilliant yes, brilliant book, The White Goddess. Yep. And he, also, and he also has a really good Greek mythology. I got, I, I was convinced of his genius back in college when he did an, I wrote it, I read an essay that he, that he had written and it was on E.E. E. Cummings. And he basically reconstructed an E.E. E. Cummings poem mm. to show what a genius E.E. E. Cummings really was, that he wasn't just cheating, right? That there was like, a deep structure in his poem mm. that he actually flushed out. And I thought, man, this guy's really fucking Was he smart. somehow connected with the Fabian Society or some group like that? Who, Robert Graves? Yeah. yeah. Maybe some, I don't know, but he was Why kind of I off by himself like on the island of Mallorca pretty much his whole life. Here we go. Did you ever hear anything about that? No, no. I just remember the white goddess and that he had written I, Claudius. And um, so this... And this reconstruction of this poem was pretty genius, actually. Mm. Did you see I, Claudius? Did you watch it in the day? No, you know, that was a PBS thing. And and I 
you know, I had a like this with PBS. It was well, just all too it was all I too high for me. Give I tell shot. you what, it is pure genius. I'm sure it is. You'll be hooked. It's yeah, we I think that and Derek Jacoby plays um Claudius and he he is perfect and he has a stutter and he just does it so well. It is you'll get hooked like within yeah, the first I mean year. John Hurt as uh, a young John Hurt as um not Nero um sorry Augustus I don't know no cool. the other the other um the depraved one um oh oh uh Caligula Caligula a young John Hurt as Caligula oh my god uh, was... a young Patrick Stewart with hair um wow you know, we I saw it like back when it was running on PBS well I must have been in my 20s I don't know but then about 12 years ago, we decided to revisit it and it held up beautifully. It, it, there was nothing about it that was dated or, oh, this doesn't work for me anymore. It was good back then, but not now. It was pure genius. Highly recommend it. All right, it's on the list. Yeah. So, good, then we can talk about it. Robert Graves fought in World War I. Sounds mm. about right. He was born in 1895. And he yeah, I never read I Claudius, but um, he, okay, I've read, this I've is read He he was born in 1895, and he died in 1985. Oh, <laughs> huh? That's How do you do that? Little inversion thing. He lived a long time. Yeah, awesome. he was he was 90 years old. Could you imagine? And you know, I talked about this with uh, with Mark Edmund Jones of being born in the 1800s. Right, 1800s. Think about being born in the 1800s. What the 1800s world was like. Even yeah. Robert Graves falls into that category. And you live to 1985, and you get to see the sweep of history and the development of all this technology. Right. But, you know, 1985. They've got personal computers in 1985. Yeah. 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 I mean, the, the change that we've seen is pretty remarkable. But think about from, what we've. But from them. You know, as much more so. I mean, there's every element. You know, um, I geez, I remember this show on I think it was on CBS back when I was a kid. It was one of my favorite shows, and it was called The 21st Century. Mm -hmm. So this would have been, I don't know, maybe around 1970, late 60s, mm -hmm. and it was about all the stuff that was coming. You know, the flying jetpacks and, mm -hmm. and all these things. You know, and we just back. You expected the world to get you know faster, better and all these things and then it it stopped you know progress in that way stopped until mm -hmm. you know until the age of computers and then there you know then there was this vast change but really you know we drive the same speed you know the, the cars have more or less the same gas mileage there was uh, planes you know they they brought in the sst but then all of a sudden that was that jettisoned um you know we used to hear them because they used to come yeah. down come across long island so we would actually hear the sonic booms back in the you know mm -hmm. the yeah. mid 70s right. yeah um cool. so you know so so something something happened maybe when we got off the gold standard um but there was or this was sort of freeze assassination well but even but well it was after that but um just seemed that there was this sort of this freeze in this uh, this progress in technology you know, that, or maybe or, Steve, it just went underground. Or maybe, you know, maybe I just wanted to because they certainly faster. didn't have a freeze. 
the military industrial complex did not no, but our lives but our lives trains planes yeah. autom automobiles that sort of thing mm -hmm. you know, well like I have an interesting story to share about that. And it has to do with a, a fellow that I used to know pretty well. And his name was Phil Fisher. And I think Phil, I think it might be around Phil's birthday, although he's passed away. And Phil was a freaking genius. This guy was a genius. He was a, you know, an Edison like genius. He, he just knew how to do shit, never went to college. And when I knew Phil, he was obsessed with, this um, maglev train. He had mm -hmm. he had completely scaled out how to create a maglev train, and not just have the maglev train, but you could also do things like run cars on on the maglev. So you could shoot your car on the maglev and stay in your car, and then your car could be taken off. So it wasn't just trains; it, it was capable of doing all sorts of things, right? And and along with that, he created this state-of-the-art trestle system hmm. that was built with hemp so it, it could withstand earthquakes and you know all kinds of mm -hmm. you, know, you know potentially you know, uh, you know devastating effects you know, due to weather inclement conditions whatever right and out of that he actually patented something called edge lock which was a uh, like a like a uh, a plate of hemp that had like edge lock in it you could actually take this and then you could build with it right you could like create walls with it and everything so that came out of his work and he was so eccentric he was an aries he was so eccentric that he never traveled by plane and he and he drove these chrysler imperials i think right around like a 62 or 63 and he loved this car the chrysler imperial and he would have chrysler imperials in like storage yards all around the country so that if he needed to get to a place and replace a part, he had a car there already. So he was really eccentric, but he was one of, he was one of the most generous people I'd ever met. Mm -hmm. And he wound up having a meeting with this guy in uh, Seattle. And he was a, he was a professor at the university of Washington and he, you know, showed him his, his plans and, and his technology and everything. And the, this professor said he validated him and he gave him this write-up and he said that his technology was easily on the same par with the Japanese and the Germans and quite possibly beyond them. Right. Hmm. So, you know, he has somebody who's accredited who was acknowledging that he was the real deal and this technology was the real deal. Mm -hmm. The reason I'm bringing it up is because it's never seen the light of day. And he was living in the state of California where they keep, you know, uh, trying to push this high-speed rail from Sacramento to Los Angeles. And they, of course, they run into all kinds of problems with, you know, lands and leases and all that stuff. But yeah. his, his version of that would have been perfect, right? It would have been perfect. It, it would have allowed people who travel by train to have a state-of-the-art experience. He had it all planned out. And in fact, in order to fund the company, they actually created a toy based on this. Oh, really? Yeah, so that they could a actually- one? Yeah, and actually sell the toy so they huh. could help fund the company. And for whatever, for whatever reason, it just, you know, 
never saw the light of day. Well, you wonder what the reason is with the uh, English owning the patent office. So right. you can start to look there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So these things, Steve, just to give you an example, like they're there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Phil had been working on that stuff since the 70s, 80s, up into the 90s when I met him and even beyond. Yeah. So they're there. And the, the the problem is, is that, you know, they don't want to change like the social economy. They, they can't move it ahead and accelerate it too fast. No. Now no. we're getting to this point where it's like, okay, we'll accelerate the social economy, but we're going to control everything. You can't do yeah. anything. You cannot right. innovate. Right. 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 And, that, and that's a scary thought. Well, let's just hope it's not perfect possession. Let's hope we're yeah. at the stage where it can still be reversed. Yeah. I, we need an army of exorcists. Right. That's what I was that's thinking. It. I think we well, all have to be exorcists at right. this point. But, we need it. But in order to do that, the, the, the preliminary to that is for us to be very, very stable spiritually. Otherwise, that's right. Otherwise, we're all at risk. Right. Um, you know, um, yeah. Yeah. I, I just brought back the memory what you're talking about. We took the, uh, the, uh, the, the train from London to Paris through the, through the channel tunnel, the channel. Uh, through the channel. And it was like the most pleasurable, I think, ride we've ever taken. Smooth as silk. Uh, smooth as silk or 100 miles an hour or something like that. And, um, you know, really nice eating cars and what have you. And it was like, I don't know, two and a half hours, maybe London to Paris. It was right. great. Got to drive. I remember driving by. I was so thrilled. The uh, that big factory that's on the, the Pink Floyd Animals uh, cover. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember. You um, I forget water something station. I forget what it was. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, that was you well, know, now, now you've got me thinking about these these underground trains. Right. That that. Basically, what do they run it like? Something like Mach One or the super right. fast? You know the under you know, the, 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 the the underground train network that uh, basically travels around the planet one way. Yes, we've heard of it. Yes, it's like pneumatic. It's like a pneumatic train. I think. Is this yeah. part of like the dark system? Is yeah. this is not? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, it's funny. It would bring us back to the beginnings. We talked about uh, the tunnel. Of of course, the uh, Bering Strait connecting Russia and the United States, and interesting. What, right. a, what a difference that would have made if that if that was actually built. Remember, Sun Young Moon was partnering with somebody interested. Somebody, somebody. I think it was a neocon. I can't remember who now. Um, it's always a neocon. Try to to try to to it's try to do, raise money to do that. Um, yeah. and, and who can you, and who can you trust if you can't trust Sun Young Moon? Right. Right. Well, his his grandson now has taken over the ministry. Has he? Yes. So Ryan, who is probably in chat today, he's been out to the event two out of the three years that we've done this, and in fact, put the put the bug in my head about doing this thing. He actually attends some of these services, and they're like like full on patriotic, right? They're totally into guns and learning how to shoot and. You know, part of the message is also part of like, um, you know, the, the 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 Revolutionary War. It's a very interesting, it's a very interesting group. And this is Sun this is Young the grandson Moon? of Sun Sun Young Moon. Yeah. You think yeah. it's legit or? Is oh yeah, it? it's totally legit. Yeah, huh. totally legit. And, and apparently, uh, he actually sent me a book. It's like I think it's over here somewhere. Where is it? It's over here somewhere. I have it. He sent me this book. It's all about like, you know, their ideology and philosophy. 
it's it's really it's, there's like this interesting thread of patriotism and uh, you know, the Second Amendment. It's a it's a fascinating it's a wow. fascinating thing, actually. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. All right, well, hey, it's been right. great, guys. This is this is fun. Yeah. Okay. Um, couple we'll talk plugs. about your talk about your press. Your, your couple your, of plugs. Can yeah. I? Uh, yeah, do you want to get False Messiah? It's on the shelf with Which, all the other books. Oh, okay. on the bookshelf. All right. So we have we so we have a, a new book by Peter Lamborn Wilson, who we've talked about a bunch of times. Uh, used to be known as Hakeem Bay, called False Messiah. It's a, a number of essays on um, on esoteric Christianity. Uh, a lot of out there and interesting stuff, you know, in, including Jesus as mushroom and things like that. Um, so that's really good. Uh, it's a really good book. Um, it's on our logosophiabooks.com website. All right. And then also we are, looks like it's inevitable that we're going to enter into contract. Uh, here's that book uh, with, do you, do you know? Uh, Miriam Heinem. She was. She's mostly known. So this is the um, false messiahs. Great. Is, it, is that that Holbein painting? Is that um, Matthew Eck, I think it's not the Eck. Holbein, okay. right? But it's, but it's from a trip. Tri, tri, it's from a triptych with triptych. and and, and uh, triptych, but with the emphasis on trip because it's a very trippy portrait of of Christ from the fifteen hundreds. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that's. But I just thought maybe you talk about yeah. Mindy's new book coming out too. Um, but that's not going to be for for a while. Oh, okay. But then we have the third book in Mindy's series coming out. Mm-hmm. Um, that's too quick. After ever after this incredible fantasy series, where in nice the first cover. book, first book she um, really she predicts the plague, and uh, the second book she predicts the war. So we'll see what's. I forget what's in the third book. Um, just, in fact, I just read it and edited it. Um, all right, and then the third one, and I, I'm going to put a, I guess I'll put a link up in, um, in the comments section if you don't mind. Sure. Um, if you, I don't know, Miriam Heinem or Heinem, H-E-N-E-I-M. E-I-M. E-I-M. Heinem. Anyway, she she did a, a very famous book on col, uh, not book but um, film on colony collapse disorder that was really well received and well done for a while but she is now like the go-to person on the whole george floyd incident and Mm. she's been writing a lot of articles on it and so we're contracting to do do that as a book and she's also going to be doing it as a as as a film um uh, which which will which will they'll work to complement each other very well but she's she's already made a short a short so i'm going to link to that and link to and what's Go ahead. Did you finish? That's all. And what she needs is uh, what she needs. You can purchase. So they have the trials that have been going on where all the evidence is. Now you can purchase copies of all the evidence of a trial, but it costs uh, a fair amount of money. It's like $8 a page or something? It's like $8 a page or $8 an item. And there are thousands of items. So anyway, so she has a GoFundMe page. and I'll link to that if you want to, because if you help her, then you're helping us help get the book published. I just and have that'll a give her, so that'll give her the evidence from the trials of the three of the three guys and and uh, that are being that that just concluded. I think I have a memory of doesn't YouTube like take down if you put a, a link in a comment section? So why don't you just go ahead and send it to me? I think it would be better. Okay. Send it to me, and I'll put I'll put it in, I'll put the link in the in the 
Uh, yeah, because sometimes they make show it notes. Here. Okay. Yeah. Okay, good, good. So, yeah, so um, support her, um, support us through her. And uh, anyway, so that's a, that's that one would be coming out maybe towards the end of the year. That's still you know, in the process of being written. Yeah, we're just... But um, basically, yeah, we're we're going to be making friends left and right as we uh, as as we go on here. So um, we'll see where all that leads. But um, it's then there's the then there's the Aleth the Alethea book, right? Right, uh, right, and that's already okay, yes, and and uh, and. And that, and she just put up an audio version of that. Which is excellent. She, very good. She reads it beautifully. So uh, Jean hardigan yeah. Wayner talking about, you know. Walking with Alethea. Walking with Alethea, yeah. Right, which gets yeah. back into the abusive, abusive priesthood in Baltimore in the, in the 70s. And so, um, so, so, and that, you know, so that book has been doing fairly well for her, us, and she's been, you know, She's been our, been our most active author as far as, you know, getting her work out. So I think those things are going around. Chris is on Fine Art America. She's got some, and on Etsy, she's got some of, of her original I artwork. actually sold some wool. <laughs> like, wow. Oh, I made a sale. That's that cool. Exciting. Good. So on, on her um, Etsy page, what's it, is it called? Philosophy Farm? Philosophy Farm. Philosophy Farm, which was the name of our farm. So I have some so, of my paintings up there and some of the wool from our the goats that you saw in the beginning here, they're Angora right. goats. Um, but I wanted to flip back to Mariam Heinen. Uh, she would make a good interview. Yeah, let's get she's on the a show. journalist. She's yeah. very articulate. She's deeply immersed in the in yeah. the George Floyd event. Well, yeah. I'd love and, to have uh, her on the show. Yeah, we'll, we'll hook you up. And and if you know, she's looking for a film producer or an editor or a producer. She needs help finding a professional who can do the job, but then she'll need money too. To, but if you know of anybody who knows of anybody in that field, mm -hmm. she needs help finding someone who can take on making this into a documentary. She's got just a short and it's excellent, but mm -hmm. she needs someone who can take on the project for doing a documentary. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, two degrees of separation or something like that. Something like that. I'm sure yeah. I know somebody that knows somebody. Right. So yeah. All right. Well, good. Yeah, you guys good. are active. Good for you. Yeah. We're on yeah. a roll. Right. And then there's so. and then there's spring in the garden. There's spring in the garden. <laughs> Spring in the air. Okay. You know. So, so we'll we'll, we'll see you a, we'll see you a month from now. Okay. Yeah. And we'll, and we'll think real hard about something else to talk about. And we'll see our friends in Chatlandia, Chatlandia across time. Thanks everybody for hanging out. Yeah. All right. Well, you guys take care. Have a great weekend. Yeah. It's it's, you, it's the Crimmies and uh, and uh, we'll see you again. Yeah, I really cracked up in the beginning when you had like the space shot with all the stars and the galaxy and you had the crimmies. Like, the crimmies in space or something. Yeah. So Your names are written in the stars. It just That's cracked it. me up. Yeah. We're, yeah. we're constellations. You better, you, better okay. buy one, you better buy one of those stars. Right. Uh, you right. Know, be, before it falls from the sky. Mm -hmm. A shooting star. Yeah. A shooting star. What is it called? Catasterization? That's, that's when you get sent, like in Greek mythology, when you get oh. sent up into the stars, catasterization, something like that. Catasterization. Mm. Is that so, a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it's a good thing. Sounds it's, good. it's better than death, apparently, is to. Right, right. Catasterization. I'll, uh, I'll hang with that for a little bit. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. You guys take care. Okay. Yeah. So long, See everybody. Bye bye. Bye. All right, that was the Crimmies. Big round of applause for them. 
Um, I'll be back on Sunday night with Sunday Night Astro Live. Here on this channel, I decided to put this show on this channel today. You know, it seems to work. There's more subscribers here too. And more people who are new to the channel, thanks to uh, my pal, David Palmer, uh, you get to see some of the other things that I do and the people that come through this channel on Fridays because we spend about two hours going into conversation and uh, hope you enjoyed it. All right. Take care, everybody. Use your head in order to discern what's real, your heart to step what's possible. I'm Robert Phoenix and uh, brush up on your exorcism skills. They might be needed here very shortly. <laughs>